Okay. Welcome right. everyone. Welcome hey, to, hey. Welcome ah. to the first and official introduction into Stoa Podcast. Our attempt at thinking out loud, probably the worst career decision we this might have made. This is going to go so horribly. I invested into this company. <laughs> <laughs> I can't I, wait. I started with the idea that I'm going to lose money. So it's no big deal. <laughs> at this point, it's sunk cost. I've literally funny. come here just so I can be closer to Perry. I'm slow key, you know, you know, stopping yeah, him. I've seen you more in the last few days than I've seen you in my whole it's life. It's actually more than I want to. There's only a certain amount of me that you can take. There is only, there is only discomfort in this conversation now. <laughs> okay, so... I mean, I guess I'll give you guys this introduction. Yeah. We have uh, Jonathan Carton. How you doing? He's the probably the Israeli ambassador to Columbia University. I learned more about the Jewish people in my time here than I've ever met Jews in my entire life. I actually, actually only met one other Jewish person before I came here. Look, no horns. See? Jonathan, you're going to want to move that way down. I think you're hiding. Right there, right there. I no, think you're hiding your horns. <laughs> From you got a, a side profile, profile, man. Thank you, thank you. From a side profile, I can't see those horns. <laughs> All right. So, so Jonathan is a member of Colloquia. He's also a member of SSI, obviously. Um, he's also one of the most fascinating people I've met. He's a comedian at heart. Yeah. Actually, you should probably just do stand-up comedy and forget everything else you're doing. Go, don't go into Iftah. No, consulting's a lie. Drop the McKinsey offer. Yeah. Straight into comedy. Iftak is also pretty interesting, by the way, but we'll save that for another time. Sure thing, sure thing. And then we have Prakar PG Gupta, also known as Pravachan. If that thing takes off, man, I'm going to be so surprised. Mm. I, I, think, I think you have the wrong idea about what I'm doing. It's just like an ironical character I'm putting up so I can preach from a place and nothing else. There is no religious bullshit attached to it. Yeah, Prakar thinks so, he's a god. We already have one of those friends. With him I don't too. think I'm a god. We, we have more enough than that. He thinks he's several gods in one. <laughs> oh, shit. With Hinduism, you have to work with that assumption, yes. Yeah. It's kind of confusing, you know? Like, when you have many parents, you don't know, like, which one you love more, and there's, like, a whole fight about it. Like, it's, 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 time. it's a lot of time. All I'm saying, you can't pray to every god all which the time. Which god? No, the Hindus more? choose it very efficiently. They're like, you know what? We'll just stick with this one. Who's your favorite god? <laughs> Myself. <laughs> hey, Avnish is our only god, okay? Oh, Avnish was over yesterday. Um, yeah. And if you don't mind, the beautiful man sitting in front of you, his name is Perry Sidhu or Parvir Sidhu. He is the founder of Stoa Colloquia and the amazing originator of the concept of steel manning, which we'll go into a little bit later. I wish I originated steel manning. That's an intellectual <laughs> test. <laughs> as long as we say it here, it's true. What we did was see the merit in steel manning and run with it. I guess in an interesting way. He came up right. with it. And I think we can credit ourselves to that. There is no denying the fact that we really put steel manning into an operable use, right? Yeah, I'm actually surprised that it wasn't so like pervasive, especially at universities from the beginning. Yeah, it is, it is surprising in view of the fact also that there is so much research along these lines, along the lines of counter-attitudes and persuasion. There is enough coverage on that too. And I mean, it, this idea got extremely popular, I think, around the war with Cuba and Kennedy being president because mm -hmm. they made a massive blunder, I think, at the Bay of Pigs or something. I'm not very aware yeah, of yeah, history. Yeah, but, uh, and this was around the time Irving Janis was uh, experimenting with groupthink, which mm -hmm. is essentially if the three of us, five of us get together and we start discussing mm -hmm. an idea because of fear and conformity issues, everybody's going to get more polarized in that direction. In the direction of the person that's become, you know, I guess, uh, seen as the alpha. Right. Or n n not as, you know, it's actually, it's actually very different. It is that the leader of a group is more representative of the average views held than so it's 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 kind of more twisted than just 
that simple note. But what happened was once they committed that blunder, uh, they called in Janice to create programs for them to actually make better decisions. Wait, uh, Janice, like the girl from The Good Place? No, Irving Janice was the, uh, psych- the, the psychological researcher. Very similar, probably related. And then they had, I think, uh, Kennedy's brother would play the devil's advocate almost in every meeting that they would have, even go out of his way to criticize his own brother and so on mm-hmm. before they would make a decision. So within the, six, the 60s, 70s, early 70s, this was a very popular notion. Mm-hmm. And then it died off. Mm-hmm. And I think what it needed was a reinvention in the sense of giving it a good nomenclature. Straw man's been around forever. Yeah. But I think as soon as Weinstein said steel manning, which is what we ran with, yeah. even though the concepts again from Peterson probably a little bit, we could, there was more operable. Yeah. There was more. You know what's interesting is leaders do that naturally, mm-hmm. right? So they're like, okay, I need to, uh, my, my opposition looks like this. I need mm-hmm. somebody to represent that as best as they can. Mm-hmm. Even in sports, mm-hmm. right? So if Kobe's going to go against LeBron, somebody has to mimic LeBron. Even in uh, football, if, if you're going against a particular defense, you want them to mimic that exact defense. Lamar right. Jackson, for example, runs like hell, right? So anytime a defense goes against the Ravens, they want somebody to mimic that as close as possible. Hmm. But that absolutely applies to the intellectual realm too, right? Yeah. I also watch sports on occasion. <laughs> and, know the, and know these references. Does Israel have anything to do with sports? We do soccer, man. That's all. Yeah, I know you do soccer a lot too. We man. do soccer like way too. Like all the energy taken from the other sports and put it in, in the United States and MLB or in like I don't know fucking hockey. Uh-huh. We just like fuck it, just soccer. Everybody soccer. Just look at soccer. Don't do anything else. So you know what the interesting part about what you were saying about leaders? I don't know how accurate that is because um, when when the Obama administration was deciding on the Osama killing, mm-hmm. right? Um, there was a closed room meeting about what are the odds that Osama is there, and mm-hmm. then there were a bunch of people from the security council who gave their art 70% 30% for and it ranged from 30 to 90% there Mm -hmm. were some people at the 90 extreme end and some at the 30 end right and there were uh, there were cries from much of Obama staff and Obama himself where they were like give me some certainty so I can make this call Uh and it isn't obvious like even in the security council stuff because I've been reading a book I I finished it called super forecasting which is all about basically how do you consider evidence and how do you place it in the equation of forming an opinion Mm -hmm. right and we are so attuned as a psychological function. We are so attuned to the binary mode of yes or no. It is or it is not. At the most, we can manage a maybe. And then the problem with maybe is we don't know what percentage it reflects. Mm-hmm. So this, the inherent problem that we've noticed as far as the discourse in, on, on Colombia or for that matter, I have noticed in any conversation that has to do with political issues for that matter, is that people do not understand the scale on which opinions are to be made. Is it 30%? Is it conditional according to this? What goes into the nuance of the opinion is massively missing. Yeah, but even in the political realm, right? So even like the Obama decision, um, it's it's never it's never fully clear and it's never cut in stone. So what, what Steel Manning does, right? So even in that circumstance, mm-hmm. it's like if I were to take this action, what are the absolute pros and what are the absolute cons? You work on the furthest ends, right? And then you consider all variations between there. Right. And it's a little different when you're having a conversation on like forming an opinion, right? Mm-hmm. But in the end, it all ends up in some type of gradient, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe your opinion is evolved, maybe five percent, right? But in a polarized society, that's immensely beneficial, right? Um, so, okay, so let's, let's, let's start with the steel man, right? Mm-hmm. Like, what is it? Um, steel manning, for those who don't know, is representing another argument to its, to its furthest extent, right? Mm-hmm. So much so that somebody that actually holds that opinion would agree. Mm-hmm. And then the, the key is to take it a step further mm-hmm. and strengthen the argument. So mm-hmm. if you find limitations within it, you mm-hmm. add to it. You consider those, and then you build upon it, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And it's the opposite of straw man, mm-hmm. where straw man is a fallacy, and you belittle an argument in order to take advantage of it. Right. But the benefit of steel manning, 
and it comes in twofold, right? And mm. this is what we talk about quite often, is that on the first side, you begin to understand the opposite position more, mm. right? You embody this position, and this is the role playing that we were talking about. Mm. You begin to play a role, and then all of a sudden, you you start to see this other as not so much as an other, but rather an individual with some level of rationale that arrived at a conclusion. Mm. And this is so obvious in acting, which is pretty interesting, because like for example, Heath Ledger and the Joker, right? Uh, it's it's very well known that if you play a dark character, it's going to impact your psychology. It's mm-hmm. going to make you. It's, it might even depress you, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But what that is is you're 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 fully embodying that position so much that your psyche starts to empathize mm-hmm. with it. Mm-hmm. Even with Hitler, right? And I love that we've had more conversations about Hitler since coming up with this. Yeah, it's been in the past twenty four hours. It's the perfect prototype, right? Yeah, it's the perfect prototype to run it again. Well, it's also necessary mm-hmm. if you want to prevent a Hitler from coming up again. What do you do? You have to understand how Hitler got there first, mm-hmm. right? You begin from that place mm-hmm. and then you build upon it, right? What other factors contributed to it? Mm-hmm. When you understand it, then you can begin saying, okay, like these were the steps that got there. How do we prevent this from happening another time? Mm-hmm. Let me enhance that definition a little bit more. Mm-hmm. So a very simple way of saying what we do with the steel man is basically the devil's advocate. We play in some sense the devil's advocate, but I think there is one more layer to it that sort of solidifies the concept in action. And I think that is eliminating the skepticism entirely. So I'm no longer playing the devil's advocate. I have to operate from the place where I believe in it. And only then does the cognitive exploration in the idea space bear me the results that I want. Mm-hmm. And there needs to be a bit of openness to experience prior because it's not an easy thing somebody can do. So when it's posed as a game, it becomes fun and then people latently believe there's no harm to it and they allow themselves to become the character a bit more. And even if they only move 5%, if they collectively all move 5%, mm-hmm. then that starts a ripple effect and this group polarization works in our favor. Group polarization towards some sort of relative century. Yeah. So when you're formulating an opinion, the first thing you have to do is suspend your own, right? Mm-hmm. And this is so common in philosophy. I'm amazed. To me, universities are philosophical institutions inherently. Mm-hmm. Everything else, even like to all you, the everything is a philosophical institution. Everything is philosophy, and philosophy is everything, and nothing at the same. I mean, time. the skeleton of everything is the philosophy of that thing, right? So there is no denying that. For sure, right? but I mean, but think of philosophy as just a conversation that we built upon, mm-hmm. right? It's like the Isaac Newton quote: "If I see further than others, it's because I'm standing on the shoulders of giants." Precisely. Those giants are the philosophers of our past. Precisely. Which is why the demonization of the Western canon is such a disservice to intellectual thought. I mean, it's like how can you? Yeah, you are absolutely right. Uh, I was passing by uh, Butler Library once, which for somebody who's not at Columbia, who does not know Columbia, is the main reading library at Columbia. And there was a there was a tour going on and then somebody um, was telling people that, so this is Butler Library and there's a bunch of dead white men written on top of that. And you have to understand that the Pythagoras theorem, which is the foundation of mathematics, which is the language of objectivity, came from one of these dead white men, mm-hmm. right? To denounce them on the basis of a modern concept of race and its implications, right? Is And you can pick the good apples and leave the bad ones, right? Like you can always discern it like that. But you cannot reject a canon. There has to be an inherent, I don't know, sorting process. So you can separate the individual from what it creates. Pythagoras is, you know, A squared plus B squared equals C squared. It's a basic geometric uh, function. It's helpful, uh, especially in carpentry in the early ages. But beyond that, the information that was given is solid information. The logic and the in the attribution uh, uh, to society is just relatively solid. I'd like to be able to you know distinguish between the individual and what he's contributed, so that I can actually enjoy the contribution without feeling, hey, what the hell where did this come from? Like I, for example, love uh, um, uh, Wagner, mm. right? The Valkyrie, the Ring. 
I know that Wagner was played in Auschwitz and it was forced to play and I know that my grandfather would probably cringe at the idea, mm-hmm. but I think some of his creations are beautiful. I, the, the, I think in that same sense, people shouldn't necessarily look at the background of the contribution or the insight because it is still insight. You know, there's, there's two very interesting thoughts there. One, uh, if you're going to research somebody from the past, again, you have to understand them. Like the context of where they came from contributed to their ideas. Mm-hmm. Nietzsche, for example, if you just read him, right? It's, some of it's profound, some of it doesn't make any sense. If you have mm-hmm. no context into, he had chlamydia, right? Uh, yeah, God yeah, is and dead. He, and he started to really like decay at the end of it. Let's and talk about a different subject, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, either then, uh, the people written on Butler Library, for example, mm-hmm. include Plato, Socrates, so, uh, Mill, guys, right? right? Locke. Goth. And you, can, you have to be able to separate the intellectual contributions that they made to society versus, you know, like some very dark parts of their character because they're human. But to, to steel man the opposite position. Yeah, I was about it, to say. It's... <laughs> Do you want to do that? No, 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 I'm not happy. No, because it's 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 it it isn't the most obvious thing, and probably this might lend opinion to why universities don't adopt that for that matter, and so on and whatnot. Is because the universities are at a crossroad when it comes to their main function, which is exploration, right? So there is one exploration that will challenge you too much, and there is one exp- then one exploration that will keep you comfortable too much. So it is either exploring within the territory you are fine with, or exploring beyond the territory you've seen, right? And they come at crossroads, especially with this, because what happens is as soon as you start steel manning, which is embodying a different value than what you've held for a considerable amount of past, you are not just fucking with that isolated belief. You see, all these beliefs are sort of connected. There is a there is a nexus of this belief mm-hmm. architecture that exists. Mm-hmm. And as soon as you start moving one piece of Jenga, the entire tower starts to shake. So it isn't it is it isn't obvious or I'd rather say it is quite obvious in that sense why universities would like to have that controlled. As soon as it goes to an uncontrolled measure and I'm questioning why should I even be alive, it becomes ex because you know you can steel man the case why I should not kill you or why I should kill you. It becomes it gets into a very very complicated place. But you, I think universities do that even when they teach Socrates, mm-hmm. right? They they teach um, they 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 basically teach Plato's dialogue, mm-hmm. right? So it's just very finite stories of Socrates. But Plato wrote so much, so many fascinating things. Even Plato's life, right? So Plato's contribution. We read the Republic. But he talks about Atlantis, he talks about theories of mind, he talks about these beautiful metaphorical concepts that are so interesting. Mm-hmm. You don't have to go into all of that, mm-hmm. right? Even when we learn U.S. history, they focus on what George Washington did, right? But I think it would also be you know, fruitful to mention that he was a slave owner, mm-hmm. and then you have to contend with that. Right. But what's happening at universities is, is they're constantly acquiescing to every demand of the student body where mm-hmm. they become uncomfortable. As soon as they reach that discomfort threshold, mm-hmm. the university is like, okay, well, we, ha- we have to completely remove this and completely address it. Well, to be fair, you know, we, we've had some of those instances play out within our career at Columbia, mm-hmm. right? And it, for instance, there was the one anti-Semitic instance um, at um, at Teachers College, I think. There was somebody who painted... Swastika? Yeah, right. And and even though the students were definitely unnerved by it, the, 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 the administration body did not come out exactly in sync with the students' demands. And that's the case for almost, if you go across the spectrum, when the whole uh, Barnard Public Safety instance happened, people were still upset by what the university did. And on both sides of the spectrum... There'll like, always be people upset. No, yeah, for sure. My, my point is... it. To me, and this is just me steel manning the case, it isn't obvious that the university just complies with what the students want because the evidence, the empirical evidence dictates that there's people unhappy on the same side of the decry, mm-hmm. even after the instance has gone by, mm-hmm. right? So I, I, I'm not sure, but it does seem to it does seem to me on an empirical level that there is a bubble that an institution like Columbia creates because of its gated nature, where people eventually end up 
subscribing to a similar set of belief architectures. You know what I find interesting? When we study history in general, I'm sorry if I'm taking this off on a tangent. Just please, man. It's, it's almost as if we study the history of war or the history of conflict. This king, that king, this territory, that territory, occupy this, pull that. What about all those sessions in between where there was relative peace? Like, how did that happen? Why was there relative peace? I think that if we're able to spend more time on those interim periods, the period that we don't actually talk about because it's technically boring, mm-hmm. we might just find a certain, you know, Easter egg of, or of insight. You know, what's interesting is I would, I would actually argue the opposite is true as well. I don't think we study the evil enough, right? So the, the fact that um, there's so many socialists on campus, there's even a communist group that emerged on campus. Hmm. There's a cost to these belief systems. And most of the students that advocate for them, I mean, they're they're there to steel men them. Um, it's that they were never applied correctly. They never actually utilized the principles. Uh, they were never allowed to... Uh, Emerge to fruition because capitalism was also a limiting factor when it comes to the global market. The experiment market. was not properly run. Basically, That's the idea. Basically, right? right? Mm-hmm. But even then, if you were to steel man the other side, you realize, okay, these people made a genuine attempt at this, mm-hmm. right? No matter where you look. And it always emerges this way because you run out of money at some point. Mm-hmm. Okay, but so it's actually interesting hearing you say it this way, right? Mm-hmm. Because our thought on this has uh, evolved quite a bit, right. where we were very much on one side to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um, that dialogue needs to happen. It needs to happen this way. You just go right at these ideas. Mm-hmm. And even now we're like, okay, we, we, we begin to see where the student body is coming from mm-hmm. and why they're so hesitant to do this. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's talk about where we were in the beginning, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. In the beginning, there was man. You should add him. You should do an audio. Maybe like them doors and turn them lights down low. You should record meditation videos. Meditation <laughs> audio is just the Sam waking up podcast. You're on a beach in Ibiza. Can you can you allow the possibility that it's just you and only you? Just, just start doing Bring that on the radio, man. You know what? There's a there's an audio recording of like the experience of schizophrenia. What the dialogue in your head is like. Oh my god! I imagine part of it's your voice. It's possible. So, okay, so when we first came to Columbia, right? So all of us actually came at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, I met Jonathan. No, we all came at the same time, and then we went to Columbia together. That's how that works. Yeah. If we were 18-year-olds, our it. parents came at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> That's synchronicity. Thank you. What if our parents are all the same age and they knew each other in a past life? Whoa. And then we were destined to meet like this. No, that's, that's starting from the assumption that they were all Hindus because, you know. Because that's they, the only they, correct religion. They're the, they're the only people who believe in afterlife and, and, and free life. In that well, even afterlife. So, so when we came to Columbia, mm-hmm. right? So we all came around fall semester 2017. 2017 right. Yeah. Um, and I just happened to meet because uh, the god that you guys will hear about someday is of Nishmera. Kalki, shout out. You know, to be fair to, I guess, Steel Man of Niche, he doesn't call himself God. <laughs> Let's not get into any other I'm Steel an avatar. <laughs> um, Well, so we came to this place for, I mean, I guess similar reasons, right? Well, let's go back and talk about where you came from and what's your, like, technically GS story and what brought you there, you know? Sure. It would be interesting to hear how, what he was doing prior, what you were doing prior, and how we all happened to meet at the same time. Well, let's start, let's start with you. I, I was in the military. I was in the Air Force. Uh, and I met a man by the name of Rudy Rockman. He was doing these crazy social experiments, and we were doing them together. And he said, well, why don't you come to GS, Columbia? And I'm like, eh, no, I want to stay here. I got into Officer's Training Corps. And my father actually had a heart attack then towards the end of my service. And I went to visit him, and he had a second heart attack. And I gave him CPR. He was in a coma for like two months. Um, wow, that must have been... It was a to lot. To give your father CPR. It's, um, it, it was a lot. I mean, thank God he survived. Um, but you'll, you, it, it, like, there'll be times in movies where like, there's a, like, a heart attack scene. And like as weird as it is, like I do get a little bit choked up, even though I don't like to think of myself as an emotional person. 
Um, you but are absolutely an emotional human being, Jonathan Carden. I'm a very uh, not emotional individual. It's only going to lead to depression. <laughs> 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 um, I don't cry. No, no but you know, in all seriousness, uh, I then chose not to go to officer training corps and, and come to the United States. And uh, Rudy pulled me into Colombia. And then since then, I've been there. Which, by the way, I think was one of the better decisions of my life, even Absolutely. though I'm suing the school. But they still love the school. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, Talk about that. I think it was one of the better decisions you made in Yasa. So how did you end up in Colombia? I mean, um, I, think, I think I would give this a flavor of why, why, why I ended up at Colloquia as well as why I ended up at Colombia. Or Stoa, why I ended up here, right? Um, I think I could, I could have... Looking back, I can characterize myself as a curious person since I've been aware of myself. And one of my primary frustrations with people in general is the fact that they don't put enough homework into having their opinions, right? And so... And it, 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 this could be a very misguided thought, but I always found people were not doing their homework enough to know what they were saying, right? And so uh, I used to run a conversation club back in India outside in my backyard where people would just, we'd just get together and we'd smoke some pot. And but it's scary to have to figure that out because that homework, we have to admit that you don't know in the beginning. Of and course. that's something that people have difficulty with. To of play course. With the ideas and Especially say, Especially when you're young. Of course. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, I was 17, so I'm pretty sure I was delusional back then too. Like, I, every six months, I get new ideas and I'm like, oh, I hadn't done my homework like, either six I, months I respect ago. somebody that says, you know what, I don't know, I want to try to find out. Sure, and, yeah. and, and, and what that had done to me, or the, the, the conversation club over a couple of years had given me this, this window into realizing how definitely articulate I was when it came to playing with ideas. You're super articulate, bro. I appreciate that. So uh, when I when I moved to when I when I when I moved to Colombia, um, my entire intent and Perry and I spoke about it like day three or day four of, of living together. I was like, I came to Colombia looking for a wall to bounce my ideas against. That mm-hmm. is all I came to came came looking. Everything else in my past is sort of irrelevant to me. I don't really give it a lot of leeway anymore. Uh, I think the most highlighted aspects of my history have been the fact that I've always just been looking for some sort of a truth to hold on to, some sort of a belief architecture to have. You and, know. and that value system brought you around the world. You traveled. You mean Loki Proker is an amazing accountant, and he couldn't have a really nice life in like Cushy. Uh, Failed the test, by the way. But really, what is a good life even? <laughs> right? Like, I mean, I, you would never guess, but this guy's doing crazy capital gains reports. At one point in time, I was also scamming the Indian population by being an auditor for a company I will not name. But in any case, um, after uh, after I got to Colombia. Um, it was just wall against wall. I was just trying to figure out a means to hold on to what I could truly believe in. And for that, I was willing to go the distance most people are not, which was dig into myself till the point it hurt. And Perry has been witness to it. Jonathan's been witness to it. There were points where I was so absolutely lost with just no sense of where I was or what I did or what I'm going to do. Um, It took me about two, two and a half years. Every six months when I go back to India, I'm like, so much has changed. How much more can it change? How much really, like, say, ah, this is going to be just the same as I, as I, like, September is going to be just the same as fucking March or February. It's a sign of a free thinker, because if you're having these fights with yourself at this point in time, what am I going to do? Where am I going to be? Then you won't be living a life that's, like, you know, not worth uh, living. For sure. So people who, like, always go down the regular track, what society says is the right thing, their metric for success is based on the society's metric for success. So they'll reach their, the success, but they won't feel happy right. because it won't be their version. The fact that you're fighting with yourself now, you're, you're preventing yourself from future fighting. Absolutely. I hold on to, again, the, the, the self-achieved belief structure that I, I'm trying to find, right? But, um, and I think one of the catalysts such a catalyst of the nature such that I could isolate myself, live by myself and still continue to work along the same lines of what you highlighted so well is the steel man method. Because now I can have a conversation with myself in my head and I can really go hard at it. I can just as well write. I don't really need people. But 
as soon as people do get involved the the fucking spectrum just explodes in an entirely different way even having these interpersonal conversations right this the the voice in your head should be a steel man voice anytime you're thinking about something mm-hmm. right i think it psychologically is a steel man voice if it's given enough water yeah right people don't water it enough and it also tells it also points out the lies or the inconsistencies or where you're falling short or mm-hmm. where the, you don't really understand the information but you're pointing it out right or you're advocating for it right um yeah, I mean I, that's that's exactly what I remember. I mean, mm-hmm. when we first met, we 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 sat down on a carpet in an empty apartment. I actually I actually am quite fond of that uh, that carpet for this reason. But we sat down. What the fuck is that carpet now? I have no idea. It's like the first day you guys moved in together, like yeah, that, yeah, that was the yeah. first yeah, day you guys yeah. met. Dude, day one we moved in together. Avnish, Perry, and I, and Jessica hadn't moved in yet, and we smoked some pot. I remember. And like we three, don't condone the smoking of uh, any. We had like a we had like a four podcast. or five hour conversation. No, 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 not day one. Day one I smoked pot, and I was like, I cannot speak in English anymore. I need to go to sleep because <laughs> like my mind was not working fine. I was like, by the way, do you know how we introduced you? We, we met at orientation. He's like, okay, so I got this amazing apartment with three other Indian dudes. No, two other Indian dudes. Two other Indian dudes and one. They're so great, and I love how you know modern technology has allowed people who don't know each other to connect in this fashion. We've never met otherwise, and like, whoa, this guy has some pretty insightful thoughts. I should probably hang around him more. You know how he introduced me, you to me. I mean, we met. We met prior, but you hated me. I hated you. I still do. But we met (laughs) separately. But when he told me about meeting you, he was like, I met this guy who took a book from me and just skimmed through it, and he knew what it was, and I think he's a genius. And I was like. Is that what's up? I was like, that seriously oh. happened? Yeah, no, he, Wait, I, I don't know. Dude, dude, I've had so many interactions where I'm like, I am not good at first impressions. I don't, I make the worst judgments when I make when I meet somebody for the first time. I'm always wrong, always wrong. Give yeah. yourself more credit. Everybody is. Wait, which book? Are we? No, no, this was Man's Search for Meaning. Uh, so yeah, Jonathan yeah. and I met at orientation, and uh, he comes up to the table. We just start talking generally, and then all of a sudden, I mentioned Man's Search for Meaning because I had just come back from. Oh, actually, I, I I had just reread the book. Victor right? Frankel, by the way, amazing, amazing book. Highly recommended. Fantastic. And we were actually talking about the latter end of it because uh, Victor Frankel said that they needed a uh, separate statue for unity, right? So we have the Statue of Liberty, but he's like, we need a statue that basically represents that humanity is tied together and they wanted to put it on they the They have West a Coast. Statue of Unity now in India. It's the tallest statue in the world. Is that true? You, you have no idea. Like, they spent so much money not feeding the poor, but building a Statue of Unity in Gujarat. It's fucking unfunny. They put it in Gujarat? Oh, dude, it is so huge. It is just incredibly huge. And then there was a whole political debate about, should we not be, like, doing things for people instead of building statues for unity? Like, what the fuck are you even trying to do? You know what? It's, it's such a, a first-world problem. The They're like, we need a statue to solve our problems. And a third-world country is like, <laughs> yeah, us too. But also bathrooms. <laughs> Where do we poop? Like... I mean, I see the sense in it, you know, like intersectionality without toilets. Yeah. That's like a that's. You a think the statue remember. is more for like public representation as opposed to? Like, it's a it's a history revision enterprise. They're trying to revise history of the, really? the history of India. So yeah. you know, like there is a there is a lot of domination of one political party in the freedom struggle of India, and the one that is ruling now wants to revise it such that their people are also represented. So they're de-emphasizing Gandhi and Nehru, which were the front runners in the yeah. or in the narrative, and now they're emphasizing other people. And they recently learned that Gandhi wasn't Gandhi. Like, he wasn't the Gandhi that the Oh, that, that's my guy. position. Tell me more Rucker, about why Gandhi isn't Rucker really and Gandhi. I differ on that. That's a whole podcast, man. I, yeah? Wait, yeah. Wait, man's search for meaning logotherapy, right? That's what we're... Okay, fuck it. Let's do anyway, the Gandhi thing. Anyway, anyway. No, we're going to skip Gandhi. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so I guess my GS story. Your uh, GS story, yeah. So I grew up in a, a very small town. Uh, it's Redding, California. And um, it's, a you know, just a simple life. And it, what's interesting is the Ivy League is never discussed. It's, it's never seems to be a possibility. I had one friend that applied to Harvard. The entire t- 
town was amazed that he made that attempt. But even when, like when you're talking to your counselors, it gets, it's never an option. But in, in, anyway, I was, I was never really interested in school. I always played sports. Um, I went through a dark period right after uh, high school. And um, it was the first time that I actually explored inward. Um, and I, I, I consider that one of the most fortunate periods in my life. Um, but as a result of that, I realized that I always wanted to try acting. This is something that I've just kind of held down because I'm Indian and I need to be a doctor, lawyer, or engineer, something tangible. Yeah, man. Um, but I realized like a year into the first time I went to college that this is not what I want to do. I was studying. I don't even remember my major that I declared. <laughs> uh, so I moved to L.A. Um, I started acting. Um, but I realized that it, acting for me, the reason I, I gravitated towards it is that it is an opportunity for self-exploration. It is, it is just understanding yourself to the most that you can. Really? So that you can manipulate it and represent it in a different I form. I would always think of this, I'm not an actor, I've never done this before, but I always thought it was a form of escapism, getting, being able to get away from yourself. You know, it could be, but there are, different, there are different schools of thought. So I was fortunate enough to be introduced to Meisner, which is you are, it's, it's uh, living truthfully under imaginary circumstances. So it's always pulls from your own psychology. Mm. Um, but this path led me down this huge, you know, uh, adventure of self-exploration. And then I became obsessed with this idea of self-optimization, right? Optimize your body, optimize your mind, optimize your spirit. Um, and not optimization for the sake of optimization, but if you want to do something that matters in the world, you have to be, you, you want to bring your best self to do it. You the tools. Um, so I realized at some point that... Um, you know, like I've, I've always wanted to run for office someday. I, a political Dude, I'll vote for you. I will so vote for you. I'll vote twice. I'll get separate security and social security numbers and just vote twice in every state. I would be honored, yeah. but I don't deserve it. You would be like Peter Buttigieg. <laughs> I can see you then. I'm hoping, go, and I'm hoping to approach it from Bloomberg or something. No, I genuinely think you'd be the only person that's not corruptible. You think so? I think so. I, I think that I think the nexus of politics does not allow for that. Really? You I don't think do anybody not, is not corruptible? You know, you start with char characters. It's, it's not just corruptible, but it's also amoral. I, I've considered political careers for myself. I like just do not think it's possible. You, 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 uh, you basically, what's the word? You um, justify it. Mm -hmm. um, as you go and you make these small accusations. Those are the rules of the game. Hey, I'm running yeah. now for the World Zionist Congress in the New York City representative slate. Hey, fun uh, fact. Fun fact. And I haven't done a thing. Like the campaign team is taking care of everything. So can you be uncorrupted if you haven't actually done anything? Eventually you will have to, right? I get like a speech or two, but that's like the well, extent if, of If that. everybody else is propelling you, right, then they're creating an image of you that's not you if you're not in the part of it. And so that by definition is corrupt. But, is it, I just but if, I don't know, if I don't even know the image yeah. that's been created. I mean, but that's why I find Bernie Sanders so interesting because mm -hmm. he's been very consistent throughout his entire career. Let I think that's a mental disorder, honestly. Yeah, actually. I think true. his consistency must be a mental disorder because your personality is a construct of your situation. Mm -hmm. The fact that he's consistent is like that he is stuck. No, like, he just never smoke weed ever i mean he probably did but you know if you do don't tell enough, him he's gonna get less votes if you smoke it enough you evolve if you, you, take become, a you become a relativist once yeah. you start smoking he's there's, been the same person also the same age since like the 60s like he's looked like he looks now since like and he talks like this since like the 60s since he was like 20 30 years yeah. old but i think it's going to be once he wins it, if obama cannot go unbesmirched there is no way anybody else like you know i'm not saying obama is the 
but the point the is yeah just people will eventually one find a way to to make that happen and two it's because there is so much that goes into decision making that is not absolutely playing on the moral field it might be playing on the strategic field it might be playing on all the other con- conceptual levels of analysis that will lead you to become a person yeah. you are not well anyway so <clears throat> bernie sanders mm-hmm. um he was he was incredibly motivating to me for me i always believe that politics was set in stone it's a small group of people there's not much you can do i was critical of everything because i grew up in a small town where they're essentially libertarian, right? Like remove most of government and you'll find a prosperous society. Uh, but then here's this guy that comes out of nowhere and he's like, I'm just going to take the average contribution. I will not take money from any major pact. And I will I will propel these ideas that I've been advocating for for years. Mm-hmm. And that was the first time that I'm like, somebody with character can actually make change. Right. And since then, like obviously my ideas have evolved, but mm-hmm. um, it, was, it, was, it was deeply inspiring to me. So I realized that um, I wanted to learn. Right. I wanted to learn all about this. I wanted to understand government. I wanted to understand political philosophy, mostly political theory. Um, Was you want to say Bernie started you on this uh, exploration, this academic exploration? And we're finding about it now. That's <laughs> hilarious. Yeah, actually, I, I do credit. We have Bernie a Trump supporter group yeah. on Columbia's campus, and we are inspired by Bernie Sanders. Yeah. Guess yeah. what? I, I, I think he has an amazing, you know, uh, uh, charismatic uh, uh, outfacing, but the, uh, the foreign policy you know, stick. You know, it actually wasn't. Uh, to be honest, it wasn't Bernie Sanders. It was Sam Harris. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. So I, I began with God. Uh, I'd started deconstructing all of my views, and when you're in a dark place, that's what you do. You start. You build yourself up from a rock bottom foundation hmm. and you're like what is it that i actually think hmm. and then i just and i became very critical of religion i became very critical of god and then all of a sudden i met I, I discovered sam harris and i started reading his content christopher hitchens and then i found jordan peterson and then from there um i realized that you know like the the academic canon is so fascinating there's so much to be gained you were such a chad bro a chad 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 have you heard chad. of that no have you heard no, of the internet no, chad, chad phenomena it's like this um, self-obsessed um, centrist who follows Jordan Peterson, Joe Rogan, and the Sam Harris crew of things, and then just definitely buys into it. Have you never come across that stereotype? No, but I'm Chad totally is a stereotypical, oh, like, for sure. No, it's a stereotypical like white jock who has joined the certain. Frat. I'm also that. Yeah, but it's not. That's like a chat. except only wannabe. Yeah, <laughs> so, so it's almost yeah. around that periphery. But Fair let enough. me make your case uh, a little more strong and tell me if that resonates with you because this conflict with God is sort of. How would you say characteristic of every 17, 18, 19 year old who's going inwards? And it sort of begins with one nature or the other of a dark place happening. And the dark place, what that does is it confines you to your limitation. You sort of, sort of now understand, probably due to sexual maturity being around the corner that or, or it has already hit you that wait, hold on life's way darker than it is it's a catalyst right it's the first catalyst and then you start addressing everything that is unknown and what is unknown is colloquially defined as god yeah and so you start moving yeah. through that concept i had a similar phase the conversation club erupted from my fucking i, I was i felt betrayed i was like my parents told me there's god all my life and there's no reason to believe that it, it's fascinating how anger is what follows that sure the way i see it is and i, I think i did this is how i described it to you is that people it's exist grief. in a bubble right and that bubble is basically provided to you from the time you're born until the time you begin to mature mm-hmm. and slowly throughout life the bubble starts to erode and i think it's a gradual process for most people mm-hmm. but sometimes a ca- there's a catalyst right where that bubble just shatters mm-hmm. and to me that's the most fortunate moment for every human being specifically every man only in retrospect but if you think about the process only in retrospect in the moment you're right. like oh my god but now I, I, I have the responsibility to figure shit out now like it's it's so it's it's a headache yeah i'm like fuck well it's that voice in your head because mm-hmm. it tells you something's not right here mm-hmm. i can't go back to where i was yeah. i can never go back to See, that place and be myself i would love to do this conversation in 30 years from now at the age of 50 when we all have our kids because it's and we all believe in God again no I'm saying people actually come back to God at the time in which they're trying to settle down 
whether it's because of communal purposes or because of uh, genuine like scare of dying purposes, they can't quite put their finger on it, but they actually become more religious, which just then creates the new bubble for the next generation. And the breaking of God is really a grief period because they go through all the stages of grief that you normally would. It's mm-hmm. archetypal, right? Yeah. So, so wrestling with the divine is wrestling with the father. This is something that uh, it's described in like every, every book on masculinity, where at some point all men go on this hero's journey. And the part of that hero's journey is contending with the ideal of yourself. And, and to me, you could just define God as some form of an ideal, right? Mm-hmm. Something to aspire towards or some like ruling metric where you gauge yourself an against. aggregated externalized ideal. Right. We yeah. all get together. We place our ideal beliefs in one book and we externalize it to something that does not exist. And yeah. in that way, God is made in the image of man. Yeah. No, man I think God exists. God. Fuck you guys. God definitely exists. <laughs> no, you know, no. I mean, and I would go to the extent of saying that there has been, for me at least, a, a return to God. I just do not see, and maybe this is the vigor of my youth speaking, but I just do not see me going back to a submissive belief in God again. Yeah, right? I definitely have to do some I think agnosticism is not like a, agnosticism is not like a default state to being in the question of God. I think with respect to any pertinent question you might want to answer, the final place you must achieve is agnosticism. Without it, you, you cannot know, discern. So that's uh, that's Sextus in the in skepticism, mm-hmm. right? He's like, eventually you're going to end up in this place where you're uncomfortable and you want to find this level of tranquility, so you suspend judgment. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if you're in, if you're intellectually honest and academically honest, you arrive at uh, you arrived at agnosticism. Mm-hmm. But I also define agnosticism as cowardice. If you, if you want to, no, I, I define I, God differently so that I can get to there without having to actually. So you are an apologist. Uh, some people would say that. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I, see, the great thing about my shtick, right, is that you get to reinterpret it and create a debate within yourself and others in a chavruta such that you can get to a definition and a version of your own belief system. Yeah. Which is, uh, you know, a belief system based on questioning the reality. So you have to question the reality whether God exists within Judaism. Yeah. So anyway, um, to, to, tie sorry, it all, yeah. to tie it all back. Um, that's how I ended up at Columbia, right? Because so I, I, I came here because I wanted to explore it. I wanted to explore God the- sent him. Oh my gosh. You know what? In some in some weird reality, you can absolutely believe that. That's what happened. So uh, I arrived at Columbia with the idea that this is the utmost of intellectual environments where you contend with the most meaningful conversations in life. Mm-hmm. What better place to be if you want to explore, right. right? And this is where Brucker and I definitely resonated when we first met. Mm-hmm. We thought that when we arrived here, that there's so much learning to do, right? And that you will contend with all the ideas and all the varieties that really matter. You'll be challenged and you'll be uncomfortable. Mm. And then when we... So when we met... We sat down on a couch, and I, so we smoked the first time. You just mm-hmm. disappeared. That was a fucking high man. Mm-hmm. Um, but then we actually sat down, and then we had like maybe like a four or five hour conversation a few days later. Mm-hmm. And um, it all was night. Like, there, it, were, there were weeks where we were just speaking all night. For months at a yeah. time, mm-hmm. man. Mm-hmm. They and had it was, a bromance before they met me, and I'm feeling very excluded right now. Now we include you this time. Yeah, bring out the part. Your part in the. All church. I'm trying to say, man, it was like a you know one on one thing. Then I was a unicorn in the relationship, yeah. and now I just feel like this is the not really. Uh-huh. You know, so, yeah. Go ahead. So we so we found this. Uh, I mean, Brucker and Amnish basically discovered all of our furniture on the sidewalks in New York. Mm-hmm. That's safe. That's uh, cancerous. <laughs> that's, that's Indian. You, that's how you get parasites. That's that exactly is Indian. That, that is Indian. Is. So uh, our couch, right, became this place where we would just sit down. And wait, wait. The couch was found on the sidewalk of New York? I slept on that couch. Everything that is there, including my underwear, was found on the sidewalk. Do you guys do, like, box. anything to clean it? Like, spray something at least? Or just I did, but, but then it's also he had sex on the couch, so. Damn. <laughs> but you know what is very interesting about the stories that we just told and how that alluded to some of the more deeper philosophical aspects of our beings is that there is conjunction only in the peripheral sense. It's almost like we know that there is 
absolute disagreement about say god between you and i right but there is a sort of peripheral juncture where they kind of meet yeah. and we could exist in that uncertainty and when this uncertainty got imported into columbia's campus we realized that the environment does not support yeah exactly right? so oh, what we course. realized is the conversations on the couch were more interesting than the conversations on campus right and we realized that one all the things that we were contending with are darker, are more difficult to discuss. Taboo. They're definitely not superficial. Exactly. And But it was something that I would imagine everybody would want to pursue in, in, in the manner that we did, right? So when we, like, for example, when we took our, like, first classes, we were like, they didn't they didn't even mention this or mm-hmm. they didn't even graze this mm-hmm. or there's this huge gap in this where we, we just didn't even, we didn't even broach the subject. We didn't even question this assumption going into it. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So then we started just, you know, Brocker would invite about a billion people over at a time. He's good at that. And then uh, we would we would just, like, pick the people <laughs> that we enjoyed the most. And uh, you guys selected for re Alex Horn. <laughs> that was just thinking of Alex. Re Thomas Lee. Alex, the, sure. the first time I met him, he, uh, Brucker invited him, and you guys will meet Alex at some point. He's a Yo, he's a current president. He of actually Colombia. came up with some ideas for uh, the podcast we have to talk about. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Um, so Alex is an interesting guy. He's one. He's brilliant. He got a perfect score on his SAT and ACT. Oh he tutors God. the people now. He got into every Ivy League, and he chose Columbia because it's in New York. Because God was speaking to him. <laughs> <laughs> actually, low key. He's definitely become more spiritual in the past like year Also, or so. spirituality means nothing to me. That word has no significance because it means That's everything. Bold. You definitely know what it's going to I mean, I have a... You're a spiritual person. I know I think, you. I think it's a linguistic non-sequitur at this point. This is Parvachan talking, by the way. God, no, I think I it's a linguistic it. non-sequitur. Like, Dude, really. you look like the Indian Jesus. There's no way you're not spiritual. No, I know I am. I mean, <laughs> the, and, but the, the problem is the way everybody uses the term spirituality is so different. And there are so many meanings associated with that word that it means nothing now. At this point, there is no exclusion in the definition of spirituality. Spirituality, anything that's outside the body, transcendence, anything that's not like you mean regular. immaterial i mean like his idea spiritual looking into your firstborn baby right and uh realizing that you created life that's not a regular normal experience that's an out-of-body transcendent spiritual experience. have you had a baby not that i know several of. So <laughs> not there's that one girl in paris right her name was phoebe you know <laughs> there's a baby carton out there somewhere i'm so yeah. convinced that one so, day i'm gonna get a knock on my door yeah so, so anyway like uh, so alex was at this party and he just unloaded all this material and thoughts and beliefs that you never tell another human being ever, by the way. And I, when I heard this, I was like, this is the guy that I absolutely want in our lives. Mm-hmm. Um, so then anyway, so we just started gathering these people. We started sitting on our couch and we started having conversations that I've been craving my entire life. Right. So like before um, I, I was I isolated myself for a significant period of time and I just never bounced these ideas around because it's scary. You don't want to talk. It's taboo. But you realize that there's so many other people that, you know, have so many interesting perspectives and so many different belief systems that if you could just agree on the one thing that you have to talk about these things Mm -hmm. um, and you have a sense of humor. Like Mm -hmm. if I think about all the people that we've collected at Colloquia, it, one commonality is that one, they just believe in dialogue as a necessity, but yeah. two, they just have a good sense of humor where they can just let these things go. Mm -hmm. And even the things that we would talk about, if we were to, have those conversations as we had them in public, mm-hmm. right? We would be all over the news at some point, right? Like worse than Prager, you maybe. <laughs> but um, that's uh, that one. Like that's how that's how that's how brotherhood is made. That's how camaraderie is made, right? Like we we talk about Zizek all the time, right? But he talks about when new people meet each other for the first time. What do they do? One tribe sees another tribe. They see that they're different. 
So they make fun of that difference. Mm-hmm. And they begin by saying, like, fuck your mother. Mm-hmm. Right. If that other tribe comes and then looks at them and then says, fuck your sister, then <laughs> they make friends. They make friends. You know, right? and it's so true. And at least in the military, we had, we had people from all over the world, right? Jews came from all different areas. And so they're Jews from Moroccan backgrounds, Polish backgrounds, Ethiopian Jews, Indian Jews, and so on and so forth. We'd get there. You would make fun of me for being a spoiled American. I'd make fun of you for being an angry Moroccan, whatever the case was. We'd laugh about it, address the elephant in the room, and then we became closer for it. And I think that's one of the reasons I decided, to, as somebody who wasn't at the initial stage but just joined Colloquia, I found it so beautiful that people were actually having conversations past, yo, so what classes are you taking? Ah, oh, this professor, that professor. I felt as though you took those insightful conversations you had when you were high on the couch and you just extrapolated forward. I'm like, there's no way I'm not going to be part of this. You know, yeah. the downside of colloquy is exactly that. I can no longer st- stand small talk at all. I like, know, I, I'm I not know. kidding. Yeah. It's, it's just impossible for me. Huh? Is that why you stopped coming? No, 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 no. Uh, I've, it, uh, I, mean, I mean, in general, like, you know, what the purpose of small talk is never really to communicate substance. It's really just to communicate what relationship. So any sort of communication has two parts to it. One, what we are talking about. And two, it reasserts the relationship we have. Yeah. And with small talk, it's just the latter. It's like a diamond ring. It means nothing except it reasserts the relationship I have with the woman I give yeah. the diamond ring. But I think that's a commonality amongst all yeah, of sorry. us to some extent, right? Like, so yeah. Jonathan has like a very bubbly spirit, right? I don't know what you're talking about. It's, it's like the most bubbles that you can imagine in bubbles, <laughs> meta bubbles. Um, but like Brucker and I definitely, like most of the conversations we had, like it was never light, right? It's always, and I've, I've, I've never really been like that. I've mm-hmm. never really enjoyed just like casual conversation. If I'm mm-hmm. going to talk to somebody, it's, might as well dig so into you things. You need it sometimes that, though. Like I'll be at a bar and I'll sit across from a girl and like, just like, oh, hey, how are you? And be like, so if you had to change something about your childhood, what would it be and why? Dude, like you can't just do that. You know? I know. And it's frustrating. I'm, I'm, I'm definitely conceding to the point that the, the fact that I've been so engaged in conversations of a deeper nature and that they've consumed it me so much. It desensitizes it to you. But yeah. You I forget mean, that people don't go through that unpeeling so quickly. Dude, Brucker taught me that when it came to dating. Um, I, would, I would like come back and be like, this is what we talked and this is how it went. And he'd be like, bro, you, you can't go over the existence of God and, and not unless you can make it the fun. emergence of consciousness not unless you can make in, it fun. in the first date no no you know what you find yourself a girl that you can do that in the first date with you put a ring on that girl right and you talk about philosophy for the rest of your life boring out all your friends hey mm-hmm. side note that's how I met Alira the first time I met her uh, did you like find her on the subway like where you found all of the other furniture in that, the house that's a, it's a, <laughs> we picked that at the sidewalk the street, too <laughs> the sidewalk straight up right yeah it was right outside of campus right. um, and that's his own story but anyway so we, we realized that okay there's a there's a limitation when it comes to campus conversations and mm-hmm. we want to improve that um so uh, the other founder Allison um, we went to an event with Mike Cernovich I think it was and um, he was uh, projected on a screen and obviously he's like this very contentious individual that you know people despise all over the place but I, I didn't think that his arguments have any kind of intellectual validity it's he's not an interesting person but the Republican group on, the Republican group on campus decided to bring him on and it turned into this huge protest right so these were things that we were hearing about quite often where students were trying to de-platform the people that they came because they thought that this is the path towards prosperity um, but what Brucker and I agreed was like well, how, how do you expect to deal with these ideas if you can't even challenge them Right. If, if somebody comes and they make a claim, you challenge that claim and then you destroy that in the eyes of the audience. Mm-hmm. Are there ideas that are too dangerous? What do you guys think? Oh, absolutely. So my, uh, since since we were speaking of the evolution that has taken place, um, there are a few places where I can definitely see a flaw 
within so like for instance let's take mike sernovich for somebody as neutral as prakhar who has no idea what mike sernovich is even now or what he says i think it's a back uh, like a skin thing for the best skin disease on the back sternovich skin <laughs> right so uh, since i have no idea i'd be happy to contest now imagine person x sitting in the audience who wants to believe what sernovich is saying Sup- suppose i inherently have a stigma against trans people and i'm sitting in the audience right and i don't have a good enough case to make but mike sorno which makes a consistent case which can often be confused for a good case yeah right i will run with that you idea you look for the confirming yeah. evidence you stay away from yeah. this precisely and so th- there is uh, th- there are some ideas that can definitely if they are made consistent if they are made consistent can definitely be let, let me Kampf. let me steal man that further mm-hmm. right so uh, we will look for ideas and seek ideas that just confirm what we already think mm-hmm. right So we'll look for individuals that also propagate the same ideas that we believe. Mm-hmm. And when you go to an event like that, absolutely you would basically enhance that person's uh, uh contradiction and bias. Right. However, um at a university, you have to give students the respect that they deserve that they can come to their own informed conclusions on their own, right? So you it's not just that you have to give them the right ideas every time or mm-hmm. the most digestible ideas every time. because if you don't ever expose these people to a con- uh, like any form of challenge to their beliefs mm-hmm. you're crippling them mm-hmm. right you're not actually affording them the opportunity to challenge these presuppositions that they're just adding on by reinforcing it with these other people mm-hmm. so even if somebody is sympathetic in the audience towards Cernovich give him the opportunity to hear the Q&A right to hear the dialogue or if if the moderator is responsible obviously he's going to challenge everything that they say right when you see that challenge that voice in your head that should be a steel man mm-hmm. begins to think like okay this is a limitation here mm-hmm. right how do you bridge that i don't know what this other per- this point that the other person's bringing up mm-hmm. i actually haven't seen these statistics either mm-hmm. i should look at that i right. should consider that right but however most people and this is just human nature is they just dismiss that and operate on their you own you know there is there is one more problem to that and that is the inherent nature the inherent nature of a conversation to include power in it and i don't mean power in the literal sense the way new york times means when it describes racism but there is a there is a there is a there is a footing that you have in a conversation no matter who you're having it with and in an event where mike sornovich is speaking and i'm in the q and a trying to let's just say discern or or even filter or 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 whatever his ideas i am in a position where i will i will have to make twice the effort to deliver the same impact that he can do with half the effort Mm-hmm. right so there is a difference there and that difference can be manifested in the audience's support of him so for instance when when uh, ben shapiro on stage says something like facts don't care about feelings that is inherently an invalid statement mm-hmm. psychologically invalid statement mm-hmm. it is not your primary orientation is your emotion and from there you do the fact finding exercise yeah right i mean if you if you t- if you remove human nature mm-hmm. and human psychology from it then yeah that is the case right, right? but if you apply just, i mean cuz these are it it's in the human context so you mm-hmm. can't avoid it so when cernovich came mm-hmm. um alison just happened to go outside i stepped away for a second i come back and this mob is basically berating her for saying how dare you even sit in the audience right so when they asked her she's like i i wanted to hear what he had to say i didn't know who he was um and they found that absolutely unacceptable they started yelling at her calling her a racist a sexist a homophobe a xenophobe which is like and only two out of those three things are true <laughs> there were four things you miscounted three out of the four things are true we can also add some to that um But then anyway, so we came back and we talked about this. And then we started talking about Milo because I believe that happened around the same time, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. Milo Yiannopoulos shows up at uh Berkeley. Berkeley turns into like this hell basically and mm-hmm. everybody gets every, all, everything gets People broken punching each other. Yeah. Um but then he shows up on Joe Rogan, has a 3-hour podcast where they actually like dig into the nuances of his positions and it destroys his career, mm-hmm. right? Um 
if you give the people the opportunity to really explain what they're saying and you give somebody the opportunity to hear it out in something that's not like a 30 second tidbit on CNN or Fox, mm-hmm. then you, okay, then this is the idea. This is what the idea looks like. Uh-huh. And this is how, this is how it falls apart. Right. But here's the contest to that, right? A similar thing happened with Richard Dawkins. Richard Dawkins has been going around with the idea that religion is a non sequitur for the longest time. He's been shitting on it since the selfish gene and so on and he's written infinite books. Right? Since he's been since he's been able to shit. He's been mass writing. Um, What happened then was I think somewhere in 2018 or 2019 he debated Brett Weinstein on um, for for a Pangburn event and by the way fuck Pangburn but Pangburn event right? Mm -hmm. And in (laughs) in that conversation what ended up happening was Weinstein so eloquently led him to a trap over 13 questions where the 13th question was a stump was a bowl with like Dawkins had nothing so he he built he basically started off with questions that would confirm Dawkins's belief for the first 12 questions where he was like oh so you believe in this I believe in this and then he eventually asked him a question about extended phenotypes which is a theory that Dawkins proposes that you elaborate on it yes I will what 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 species do is they ex- phenotypes are for instance this is how my fingers look this is how my eyes look we have material structures <coughs> that we build beyond our own selves all species in one way or the other like the what is it called uh, hey what is what is that thing called that uh, the dams that what species builds dams beavers beaver like beaver dams are basically inherent to their species they know how to build it it's in their let's just say genetic memory and they make it right. so that's an extended phenotype and the case that uh, dawkins uh, the, the case that weinstein made eventually was that religion is an extended phenotype that humans have. And Dawkins was bold. Dawkins had no answers. He, he, he just got very, very like uncomfortable and he's moving in his seat and it's very evident. But then what, what happens is Dawkins goes home, goes on Twitter and then tweets, Brett Weinstein does not understand what sexual selection and natural selection means. And he gets more popularity for that tweet than Weinstein gets for that credit for that debate. And this is what I mean by the inherent power dynamic built into conversation. But even then, right? There's there's still endless amounts of opportunity that exists but, there. But because let me I've, I've seen mm-hmm. Richard Dawkins' thought evolve, mm-hmm. right? So even his position on psychedelics is that first step into this transcendent reality that exists in consciousness, right? Right. But, but then, so so what happens is that it is not just the need is not just for us to not deplatform. The need, the second need, which I think is a higher responsibility we have as soon as we assume the responsibility of not deplatforming anybody, not letting any idea out of the mix of ideas, is to bring that idea to a place where it can be contested with in the same level of power. Right? So if you and I are talking, there is no more a power dynamic. And now we can really hope for the best idea to emerge. Why does there have to, why is the power dynamic? I'm still trying to, this is, might mm-hmm. be my ignorance. Right. Uh, uh, learning and I'm not, I'm not ashamed to say that I don't know but I can't quite understand why is it that the power dynamic prohibits people from speaking to one another no like, it's, it's not, not like prohib- I lose my voice no so so y- here is a general skeleton of the Weinstein Dawkins okay. debate Weinstein who is a lesser known person a lesser known professor a lesser credited biologist mm. totally stumps Dawkins in a debate right which basically means that what Weinstein's and better idea is because he was more powerful could like turn it change it yes after the, the debate after the debate when Dawkins floats a, an absolute uh, invalid statement there, he still gets more response from people but than Weinstein term. does. I feel like in the end, the truth kind of raises to the top. But, you know, in the long term, like John Maynard Keen said, all of us are dead. So our attempt at colloquia, or for that matter at stoa, is not just to allow people to say what they have to say, but also to bring them down or bring the other person up to the same level. So we are actually contesting purely on the framework of ideas, so, no longer on power. So this is actually a good point, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the, the power dynamic component of it is, a, is an argument that you hear all across universities, that if you have an unequal power dynamic, then a, a proper conversation cannot exist, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. However, 
that person has power mm -hmm. and you don't. You still want to challenge them, mm -hmm. right? So if you just accept the fact that they have power and you have to leave them with that power, right. then there's no way of dismantling Precisely. it, right? So fundamentally, conversation needs to be. But um, when we, Brucker and I were obviously, like, we, were, we, we basically sit down on this couch and we're like, okay, these conversations need to happen at universities. How do we make an environment where people can have the most quality dialogue mm -hmm. on positions that they don't hold, mm -hmm. right? Um, there's obviously a, a very hard left skew when it comes to academic environments, especially at Columbia. Um, so we're like, okay, how do we how do we get people to talk about the other side? Mm -hmm. And it kind of emerged from this idea because we asked somebody, you know, what do you think conservatives think of guns? Mm -hmm. um, why why do they hold that position? Mm -hmm. And virtually no one could really give us the argument that we thought was a steel man. Mm -hmm. um, so we're like, okay. One, students don't want to speak their mind, especially if they're conservative, because of fear of ostracization. Mm -hmm. And that's very effective when it comes to 18, 19 year olds, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, but also people don't want to consider the other side. So that's where we started implementing Steelman, mm -hmm. right? And Steelman only came, like at least like the original idea that I found came from um, a, a Jordan Peterson video where mm -hmm. there was an entire class and they were given this political affiliation test and they, all, they were obviously landed far on the left. Um, and they were told to write out an essay steel manning a conservative argument. Then they were given that same affiliation test afterwards and they realized that everybody started gravitating towards the middle. Mm. So we're like, okay, there's something to this idea of embodying the other position, mm -hmm. right? Steel manning. And then we're like, okay, people don't want to explore ideas if they know that there's going to be negative repercussions when it comes to it, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. Even in this idea of the power dynamic, mm -hmm. if you're like, say, pro-Israel and you're trying to talk about Israel and why Palestine, are why are you saying? Why are you looking at me like I'm? Because you're the Columbia University your Israel face investor. You look really hard at the Israeli flag. You start to see my face, actually. You know what? What if we put a different flag up here every single time? Can we, sure. like, can we get our faces up here? Like just like randomly, or like, put our faces on. Or like one know, person like wearing a costume. Every the the three monkeys that Gandhi had. One yeah, 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 yeah. Just yeah. have that in the background. Uh, That'd be hilarious. But you know, to to up the scales, I think the 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 best, or I think the most valuable insight that I've had from running with Colloquia or running with Stoa or this model of conversation that we've created is twofold. The first one of them is exactly that. It's creating an equal power structure to have a conversation where primarily ideas are competing, mm -hmm. right? An event with a speaker cannot truly offer exactly. that. Right? So that, I think, it, it's not just that we put people back on the platform. No, we leveled them down and leveled ourselves up to meet at an equilibrium. I still don't think this power dynamic thing uh, has a corruptibility for a conversation. I mean, if you're the David and the Goliath, right, I actually think people give the underdog more uh, weight. Of course. So they'll, so like, if, for example, uh, one person speaks truth to power, like, that's seen as gusto. I, I don't. I, th I don't think you have to also you have to also consider you have to also consider the limited information model in which we operate. So, for instance, I did not see the debate between Weinstein and Dawkins, but I am I follow Dawkins on his Twitter, and he says Brett Weinstein does not understand sexual selection. I when I look at the debate, I'm already coming with the head that this guy does not understand what he's saying. Right, but that doesn't mean that they can't have the debate to begin with. Sure, and they, they, they should ideally they should. And I think the perfect part about that debate was that they were placed on an equal footing. It wasn't like Weinstein was sitting in the audience asking a question. Right, the fact that they were both on the stage sort of leveled the playing field. And the second thing I think that we're doing right with this model is that we are no longer moving to change people's opinions. It is just to keep them anonymously in check. Right? Yeah. First, a shroud of anonymity ensures. And then, no matter how, say, Nazi you are in your underlying belief, I, with, my rhetoric, yeah. I with my underlying rhetoric, will keep it in check so that it does not yeah. go too far. And that is the point of conversation. So let me expand that further, right? So we realize, okay, this is a huge barrier when it comes to conversation. And even the power component of it. Um, if there was a professor that led all of these dialogues, 
then you realize that one, this professor does hold this level of esteem, right? He has the ethos that changes the, the dynamic in the room. But we wanted it to be student to student. We wanted students to educate themselves. They, we wanted them to begin with what they already understand and then mm -hmm. observe the limitations in their argument. Mm -hmm. So what we added was the anonymity compo compo component. Mm -hmm. Now you suspend all of your own beliefs. You never once admit to what you actually think, but you're given a side, right? You're given a perspective, and then you begin to steel man that perspective as if it was your own. Mm -hmm. When you gamify this model, people, people, people begin to embody it at a level that's quite human. Um, Plato has a theory of play, right? Um, basically, if you observe somebody playing and in their flow state, you observe their base nature. And if you watch somebody, like say tag, right? Um, I learned this at, a, at this event we did in like eighth grade where this guy was just trying to make some point that I forgot. But the only thing that I really got out of it was this Plato's uh, theory where uh, everybody was told to close their eyes and then walk. You couldn't run and you had to tag one specific person. So there's just like a mass of people in the, in the auditorium. And you would watch and some people would open their eyes and cheat. Some people would begin to run. Some people. Wait, wait. How did you know that they were cheating if your eyes weren't open? Also, there was a group that that was yes, watching. Was cheating. <laughs> there was a group that was watching, and then there was a group that was playing, and then you flip, ah. right? So, uh, he, and he pointed all of this out. Like we didn't re we didn't realize this as we were watching, but then you notice, like, yeah, that was actually happening. And even when you play basketball, you notice that some people take a leadership position. Some people make excuses for everything. Some people aren't competitive. Some people, you know, like so want to take an easy way out. Hmm. Um, so you you begin from this place of it's not my position that matters, right? It's representing the other one that matters most. Mm -hmm. So you be, we, be, we began this steel man model. Mm -hmm. One person is, uh, one side, we call it the red team, blue team, is giving one perspective. The other side is giving the opposing perspective. And especially in this binary world where everything is oppositional, it's very easy to find what these two ideas are, mm -hmm. right? Even though that the vast majority of the benefit exists in the nuance. Mm -hmm. So uh, we created a red team, blue team, right? So like guns, for example. Um, one is, you know, uh, pro-guns, one is not. Uh, abortion, pro-life and pro-choice. And then you begin this dialogue. But then the key is that you flip, right? So each person represents both sides of the argument. And then we begin into an open conversation where you can explore any avenue, mm -hmm. right? And that's hopefully where the nuance starts to emerge. Mm -hmm. um, then we realize that, okay, if, if we've created this oppositional model, right, then you're always going back and forth and you're really just like point, counterpoint, point, counterpoint. This is something that Brucker pointed out quite readily. Um, so we're like, okay, let's, let's, let's do it where the whole room steel man's one perspective. And then you really begin to dig into the idea. Mm -hmm. But what that afforded us was the ability to talk about very, very difficult conversations, mm -hmm. right? And consider what the other side thinks. Mm -hmm. If you're on a university campus, you'll think that the obvious idea is to ban all guns. Mm -hmm. But if you talk to a conservative, you have to know why they want to hold on to these guns so tightly, right? right? What are the principles that they're operating from? Right. If you can't have a proper dialogue and understand them, you're never going to change their mind. And your opinion is invalid because you might just be parakeeting somebody else. It takes iron to sharpen iron. Exactly. Unless you can convincingly play the counter argument, then your argument is not really valid. And then you start to see the limitations in your own beliefs. Mm -hmm. Even if you, I, even if I'm against guns, right? And I begin to tell all the reasons why I think guns are terrible. But then you see the gaps in even like where you got your ideas from. And mm -hmm. especially when you're young, mm -hmm. what you're doing is you're an amalgamation of all the people that you yep. seem to admire. And then you just propagate those ideas. Right. As you get older, you realize like, okay, I need to formulate my own opinions oh, right. and my own beliefs. Right. So we, we basically wanted to create a university within a university, mm -hmm. right? Where we can educate ourselves, mm -hmm. right? As students, mm -hmm. as adults. Right. Mm -hmm. Have you ever defended a position that your parents gave you? 
Like, have you ever uh, believed in something your parents gave you yep. and then defended it when talking to somebody else? Religion, so many times. How passionate is that defense? It's super. You feel like it's, it's also more interesting the the morality of of like of your family. It's also more interesting for me when I'm defending something my dad gave me as against to what my mom gave me. What my mom gave me is more given to me. What my dad gave me is more un- un- unstable. Like By the way, I've met Prakar's mom. She's a goddamn saint. She's a lovely woman. And she done. needs to be on this podcast at some point yeah, in his, time. His dad's a sweetheart, too. Oh, yeah, okay. Also, also a sweetheart. You know, you know. so I think you did a wonderful job at explaining why this model works in service of the people who participate in it. But there is another hidden component to it, which is the service this model renders to the matrix of ideas itself. Mm-hmm. How does it help the sphere of ideas? And this is how it does it. And I, I describe it comically, metaphorically, in the sense of a buffet model, right? Mm-hmm. So all of us get together. There is this huge table. We put whatever the fuck we have at our homes, like a potluck, on the table. And then when we're going out, we can pick in almost a positive some fashion, where like the chicken does not get over no matter how many people pick the chicken that I got mm-hmm. and leave with that, right? Mm-hmm. And what we also make sure in this entire process is this putting and taking. What I come with and what I leave with, one is individual, two is black box. Mm-hmm. Almost apparently black box because mm-hmm. nobody really knows what I really brought to the table. You know, I could be animating myself in this direction yep, right. and what I take home is absolutely anonymous to me too so in the sphere of ideas we haven't just managed to give people the opportunity to speak or learn but to do it in a fashion where there is the I think possibly the most efficient and the most efficacious yeah. way let, let me take that metaphor one step forward mm-hmm. it's not just that you're bringing these ideas into the potluck it's that as soon as you put the idea into the potluck it multiplies see an idea is not like an apple where if I give you an apple and you give me an orange now we both still have one apple and one orange the idea is more than that. If I dreams. give you an idea and you give me an idea, now we both have two ideas in our head. So it's it's more than just uh, an exchange of anonymity and, and, a, and a collection of different uh, beliefs, but it's also a, uh, a, a ideation of beliefs as well. It's a positive sum game. That's the best yeah. part about ideas. I like the I like the analogy of the buffet model, mm-hmm. and the way we used to talk about it is basically you extract your own position and you put it in the middle of a table, and mm-hmm. everyone does that collectively, right? Mm-hmm. And then you just watch as it evolves and plays. And that's the thing that I think is is it should be inherent to universities is you're supposed to play with these ideas, mm-hmm. right? No matter how difficult that they are, mm-hmm. obviously. What, 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 what wins out in the platform of ideas at universities eventually permeates into the larger society, mm-hmm. right? That's why we've created this academic bubble to create the future leaders and thinker, thinkers of our society. Mm-hmm. But if in universities you only exist to the same set of ideas every time and then every class that you take is just reinforcing those ideas, as soon as you get down to larger society, you realize that it's far more difficult and complex than you originated, right? Mm-hmm. So the, the philosopher, and I think any academic should see themselves as a philosopher, is, is to make yourself as objective as possible, right? Obviously, we're human. We have bias. We have, mm-hmm. we have these stereotypes that we create. And mm-hmm. we fall in love with our positions. We fall in love with our ideas. Mm-hmm. But, I think it's who we are. But exactly. And, and that's the thing, right? So we, we associate ourselves so closely. We associate our ideas so closely with our sense of identity that any challenge on that thought becomes a challenge on the person. Mm-hmm. That's why the anonymity of component of it was so effective. And that's right. why ad hominem attacks are effective as well because you believe if you can discredit the individual and the idea no longer stands. Exactly. And that's inherently why but, they do but it. You Here's, let, let me add a correction to what you said. I do not, I necessarily, how do I say, so here is where I am with respect to objectivity. I think objectivity is probably a more difficult approximation to achieve than what I can say is consi- 
speculation, right? So here's what I think. Most ideas have an inbuilt element of speculation to them, right? So if I'm talking about guns, what will happen is a very major aspect of controversy that will decide what my opinion on the subject is, right? Given that, I think the job of a philosopher, the job of anybody who's planning on doing their homework is to one, really parse through the evidence and the way they must associate with that evidence for that speculation and to constantly be in the mode of upgrading those particular equations of evidences and weights, right? So it, it is not that I can achieve objectivity. I think objectivity operates in the same sense as the law of large numbers do, mm. right? The market sort of like it sort of averages the whole thing out. What we can do best is have the best form of subjectivity that we can, the most responsible form of subjectivity yeah. that we can. Well, I mean, I think that's what happens, right? So mm -hmm. you think that your subjectivity is the objective position, um, or that it's, it's objectively true that is nothing but subjectivity. Both of those don't allow for fruitful intellectual conversations. Um, but I, th I think it's actually the same, right? So when you approximate objectivity, what happens is you begin to disassociate yourself from your own position, and mm -hmm. then you see the subjectivity in all the other uh, positions there. So then that affords nuance, right? right? So even with the anonymity component, we extended it one step further. Mm -hmm. Now we don't, we don't record audio and we don't record video for this exact reason, right? Mm -hmm. So now students are in a space where... Anything that they say stays in the room, right? You anything that uh, any position that the student the student puts forward, everybody in the room understands that you assume that it's not their actual position, right? So now you're not held accountable to it, but it allows you the freedom to explore. It allows you the freedom to consider. Um, and what happens then is you you begin to start to liberate yourself from these chains that you put on. Um, so what this allowed us to do is explore the most controversial conversations that I, I think are completely absent, right? And mm -hmm. the thing is, in, especially in today's world, the controversial conversations are typically the ones that need to happen the most, right? But we, we avoid it in the academic environment because you don't want the students to get upset and then you don't want to ruin the university what, what funding. What's your favorite star? Because I feel like we've been talking a lot about um, these controversial ideas, but we haven't actually given any examples. So your favorite star... Uh, most interesting insight they pulled out something you didn't actually understand or know prior but coming in really enhanced uh, your pivot I have, in your mind I have so many favorite stoas pick one one, one I think interesting topic was the topic in a hat right and I think it's probably one of the most controversial is should non-members of the African American community be able to use the n-word right yeah um so that's a that's a valid question, and that's something that you know you have to think about. Uh, context and so on and so forth. Why why do why do people say that this is the case, right? Why should I believe this? Um, so we began this conversation, and my first thought was, okay, we won't use the N word for this conversation. Let's just let's start with there. Right. Um, but then you realize that okay, so there's there's one side, right, which is saying that this word has been mobilized against one particular group of people, right? And it's been used to subjugate them. It's been used to insult them. It's been used to dehumanize them. Hmm. And then their belief is that, okay, we are going to take command of this term. This is now our term, right? Mm -hmm. This is no longer used by our oppressors. This is now used by us for us, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. On the other side, um, it is controlling speech, mm -hmm. right? Uh, the other side is that you... Making a word, one single word, taboo, is not an effective metric if your goal is to uh, homogenize a society to also, bring people together. Also, you're fossilizing the same oppression. Like, as long as the word is is alive in whatever diction you choose for it to be alive by, the fact that you are using it in a way so that it's not used in the first way is fossilizing the yep. oppression in that same word. And you could use a word bitch, for example, mm -hmm. right? So the word bitch was used for... Um, Female dog. 
Exactly, but it was used for African American women because they considered their children not human. They were mm. pups, right? Mm. And there were all these ideas that obviously, like you know, like uh, women in heat and and you know, like the the promiscuity and you know, it's, it's again another word to dehumanize right. women as a whole, but particularly mm. African American women. Mm-hmm. Now it's a colloquial term, right? Women say it to women, mm-hmm. um, gay men say it all the time, right? Mm-hmm. And it, it and there, this taboo has been kind of removed from it. Mm-hmm. So on one end, that seems to be an effectric metric, mm-hmm. right? There was actually another word. And I don't remember what it was, but it's a word in India. And I think you told me this. Uh, Divine or somebody decided that. Do you remember what it was? No. Okay, I'll leave that aside for right. now. But you I know what? The funny distinction there was the ability to figure out whether it's in a can, like legally in the books, can you, can you not say this? Or is it a should? Should you not say it? Like, obviously, if you know that it's going to offend somebody, why be an asshole? You don't have to be an mm-hmm. asshole. So, but the, so that even, distinction I thought was also interesting. So that's not obvious, right? No, not that, really. The fact that you have these two components to consider and it emerged naturally in a conversation amongst students. Right. And we thought that this conversation might just blow up and be mm-hmm. the worst thing ever. It got close. It got really fucking close. Uh, only in one moment with one person. We won't <laughs> mention his name. We're still looking at you. But here's what I'll say. You know, I'll take on I'll, uh, with, with that conversation, which is... So obviously controversial. I will take on one charge that is leveled at this model, this, this this club, this this idea very often, which is that, oh, you are allowing people to make a case for why they should be able to say the N-word. And here is how I will take that accusation on and sort of um, I will try and break it into pieces. See, you have to understand that this, this decision of the N-word not being used by people like you and I happened way before I was born. There is something called the lifetime bias, which is that since I've been alive, this has been the case. And I cannot introspect before that because I had no idea of what subjective feelings I have towards. What is the subjectivity before I was born does not exist, right? You can imagine. Right. And so at that point, people are like, you are allowing people to make a case for why you can say the N-word. No, what I'm truly allowing is for people who do not understand why they cannot say the N-word to be represented in conversation. Mm-hmm. I'm really, what I'm really facilitating is the strongest possible case for why the end. And people say that about Israel, Palestine, or whatever conversations we have is that you are allowing for the Israeli oppression to be validated through speech. No, I am allowing for the Palestinian the, the, the fact that Palestinians face, quote-unquote, that oppression, whatever that might be, to put through the logical test of, is it really oppression and where yeah, it's coming so, from? So let me just simplify that a little mm-hmm. bit, right? Mm-hmm. I have a position that I think is the absolute moral position. I think the opposite position is um, obviously incorrect and obviously something that we should transcend, right? How do I, how do I make sure that this portion wins out? First, I need to understand why that person holds that position to begin with, right? So much so that they will they will absolutely agree that this is the case. Then I have to formulate and reinforce my own narrative, right? See the limitations within it and then begin to expand. Right. From there, you participate with, with the other person in a dialogue. Okay, so a little bit of a break. Jonathan has a bladder of a child. Listen, all right? I couldn't hold it in. Um, so where we left off, right? And actually, I, let me let me make this introduction. Right? So my favorite, one of my favorite stoas, and I think is an testament to what we're attempting here, is uh, the conversations around Israel and Palestine. So, okay. So to begin with, uh, I'll start with the event that Alex did, right? So we brought on a professor named Abe Hawk. Um, Abe Hawk, uh, he identifies as a Palestinian Zionist, right? He's a professor at NYU. And um, so we brought him to campus. Actually, no, SSI brought him to campus. And uh, SSI has been deeply, at least sympathetic towards our attempt at representing counter narratives. So the way we host events is if there's somebody coming, right? And similar to what we were talking about with the, with the Cernovich and even um, Milo, right? If you just hear one side where somebody gives a speech, essentially, then it's a matter of rhetoric. This person is, can convince any amount of people. He's in the lecturing. Audience. Exactly. And it's sophistry at the end of the day. 
So we were like, okay, we will do our best attempt to represent the other side if we cannot find somebody to do so. Um, SJP has this anti-normalization policy, so they believe that having these conversations with this unequal power dynamic um, prevents from any fruitful conversation from occurring, right? But we know that these events are going to happen anyway, right? Why not improve the quality of them? And it benefits everybody involved, like as we discussed earlier. So Alex came. Alex is Jewish. Alex killed it. And uh, he's you know very sympathetic towards the Israeli argument. But what he did the entire event was steel man the Palestinian narrative. And he did it in a manner that I think is, is quite beautiful, mm -hmm. right? It, that, that, it was my favorite event for that reason. Mm -hmm. And then we had Abe Hawk actually steel man the other narrative as well, mm -hmm. right? So what happens is, one, you can at least see that this person understands what they're speaking against, right? And it doesn't even have to be oppositional in that nature. But you see that, okay, this person is beginning from a place where they're not just speaking of their own ideology, right? They can at least articulate the other side. You remember what happened in that event? In the middle of the event, uh, somebody had said something that was, I think, anti-Israel or something, of course. And then the people around that person started laughing at the inaccurate assumption, mm -hmm. some sort of libel. And Abe Hawk, uh, who himself is very pro-Israel, stopped the entire thing and said, hey, this is not in the spirit of Stoa. Mm -hmm. We don't laugh for bringing up opinions and playing with ideas here. Right. And, it's, you know, and really it solidified what we had come. I think right. that moment was so pivotal, mm -hmm. not just for the people around him, but also the person who was, came in with the idea that he was going to destroy the event. As he a himself feedback. left that room understanding what so was really about. No, as a feedback for people like us who were running the experiment, that was so pivotal because I understood somebody who could have a very hardened position over 40, 50 <coughs> years of his life, 30 years of an academic career, could still buy into this environment, right? So for me, that was more so... It was more important for me because I now knew that I could believe in this idea with more validity than I ever yeah. have, right? And, and we even experienced the other side of that. So when we did the heterodox event, um, we, we it was called the State of the Union Address, and we gave, or no, sorry, State of the University Address, mm -hmm. and we gave our own version of the State of the University. Um, so it was a very much like, you know, one-sided, right? And um, everybody seemed to have the same opinion, but then you stood up. And you said, hey, uh, can you steel man the social justice narrative? And he said that to Jonathan Haidt. Jonathan Haidt, right, right. right? So this was Jonathan Haidt, um, obviously coddling of the American mind and Heterodox Academy. Deborah Moshek, who is the CEO of the Heterodox Academy. And uh, Professor Scott Barry Kaufman, who is a lovely individual. He's, he's just a professor the best of psychology. person in the world. Yeah, he's, he's, he's excellent. He's man. a lovable man. And even in the interest of the STOA, right? So he recognized like, okay, I need to push back on these people because it's one-sided. So mm -hmm. as a moderator, who's very sympathetic towards his argument, experiences it every day at Barnard, mm -hmm. was like, okay, I'm, I'm going to contribute to this conversation in this way. Also, he's part of heterodox. Yeah, he's oh, part of heterodox. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Really? and he was pushing against the idea that he's bought into with money and time and academic credit. What's interesting is he's also a part of Stoa, right? Right. Mm -hmm. So he comes to our weekly meetings. He participates with us, and that was interesting because okay, now we have professors that are saying that okay, you guys are on to something correct because mm -hmm. before it was just us, you know, talking with us, and we thought like okay, you know, it's a GS community. Um, you know, these older people that come back to college. They boomers. Boomers. <laughs> Literally boomers. I don't know what you're talking so, about. So another good example is the, it's one of the first events we did actually where we tested something called the hot seat. Right, right. right. So you bring somebody that has a very hardened position on one giving topic and you'd ask them to steel man against the entire room the opposite position, mm -hmm. right? 
uh, and it's it's so fascinating to see what's obviously a professor, but um, Jonathan is, you know, he was a member of uh, the ID, IDF. He's a member of SSI. Um, and especially if you hear the podcast with Rudy, then, you know, he, he is, he, you, you can get an idea of where he lands on the, on the issue. But um, he was on the hot seat and he began with steel manning the Palestinian narrative. Mm-hmm. And the first thing he did was it's not Israel versus Palestine. Right. And I thought that distinction was so beautiful to point out. It is it is two people with these uh, two different perspectives uh, trying to approach the same thing where the end result has to be cohesion. Right. And, and so your attempt was so fascinating to watch, right? It was the first time where I was like, okay, this works for people that are not just like Bucker and I. I I really enjoyed it as well, because to be quite honest, um, when I was making the case, and this is again, it was not pro-Palestine, pro-Israel, they're they're, they're not mutually exclusive, it could be both, but I was making the case uh, uh, pro-terrorism, pro-Hamas, right? Specifically the radical end, the steel man uh, and the support of, uh, of these groups that actually you know, I'd been responsible for the killings of my friends and, and my family, uh, I began to understand their side. I understand if that, in, if you don't have any food on the table and if you've been indoctrinated to the point where you feel as though um, there's nothing left for you to lose um, and you want to be a freedom fighter for the nationality of uh, your people, right, and everybody around you is suffering because the economic detriment is, is a problem there, then you'll, you'll revert to va- uh, violence, especially because there is no dialogue. And when there's no dialogue, there are two ways of communicating. The first is communication, the second is violence. You don't have the first, you ask for the second. I never thought about that. I thought these people were brainwashed, that they're crazy, that X, Y, and Z, because you know, these are the people that blow themselves up. But the steel man allowed me to put myself in a situation where I can identify and embody with the person who's blowing themselves up so that their parents and their kids can get paid. Because otherwise, there's no food on the table. Mm-hmm. And what's fascinating is that one thing that the steel man does, it's, it's not like this monolithic steel man where you have to get, like, say, the Republican position completely correct to its furthest end, right? So like an alt-right position. Um, it's a steel man according to you, right? So that buffer allows you to say, okay, it's not that these people just want to kill Jewish people, right? And then you start to limit it from there. Like, what is the... What is the responsible rationale, right? Mm-hmm. What is the average rationale? And then you start to see, okay, this is somebody that has this fundamental belief, mm-hmm. this principle, this leads them here, this leads right. them here. This is a history that they're operating from, right? And then you begin to say, like, okay, this is, this is how this emerged, right? right? Um, so that example is, 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 is one of the ones that I really, really hold I think, on to. I think it's uh, very pertinent to pick on this aspect of brainwashing that you mentioned because usually when people start to define the other in a social setting, uh, the common attributes are willful ignorance, stupidity, you know, brainwashing, stuff that can be explained away by external factors that don't exist in the closed system of this conversation. So I cannot do anything about it because this person's brainwashed, right? And I think... What the difference is, is between an irresponsible attribution of reasons, of causes, and a responsible attribution of reasons and causes. And that's what exactly the steel man probably allowed you to do in that moment was to embody the other side more responsibly than you would have done it passively. Right. Right. And, and, and I was able to embody the idea of the other side and try to make a very, um, I guess, convincing argument for the Palestinian people. Right. Um, what was very, very difficult for me to do was to operate and uh, justify violence, mm-hmm. which is a, viscerally against my, my character. Mm-hmm. But as soon as I broke that shell, pff, the floodgates came. Mm-hmm. And uh, I began to not necessarily change my opinions, 
but they became more nuanced. You know, uh, another example of that. You remember when, um, I forgot what his name was, but he steel manned the Hiroshima bombing? Right. Um, Nathaniel. Nathaniel, right? Blew my mind. It was amazing to Blew me, my mind. One right? of the most hard-hitting facts of history, the bombing, yeah. the atomic bombings, and for somebody to rationalize it in a way where somebody like me, who thinks he's smart enough, had nothing to say in opposition, uh-huh. right? Where I had to sit with the thoughts that he'd put out. Yeah. I was like, mother hell fucker. The room definitely benefits as well. Exactly. So like one person can I come in. I miss Nathaniel. I want him back at Stoa. I do too. Uh, what, so the, the, it's so fascinating how that occurs. Mm-hmm. One person comes in and he just makes a solid steel man where everyone's like, Oh, and I, it's not like we, we walk away thinking that Hiroshima was right. Yeah. Right. Like now you understand why it had happened. Yep. Right. And how we can avoid it next. Right. Or we might be able to, you know, whatever the maneuvers are. Exactly. We understand there is not just a moral level to it or like a human pop. There is a strategic level to war too. You, you remove the demonization first. Completely. And if I see a person who's like adamantly saying, no, we did the right thing to do this. I'm not going to say, oh, that guy's racist and walk by him. I'm going to say, whoa, maybe he has some things that I simply don't know yet. Yeah. Right. So this, a topic, this topic emerged so. from a topic and a hat, right? Mm-hmm. So what we do is we get everybody in the room to put an anonymous topic in, and it could be literally anything. Not literally anything. But it like, could be literally anything. No, we have some constraints operating, right? So like, for uh, instance, no. if, you're, if, you're talking about, if you're talking about drugs in, in topic and a hat, you'll have drug topics and then they would have to sort of align themselves with a conversation that can be bipartite. Yeah. Right, right. So right. anything you can buy. So there's some sure, yeah. constraints yeah. that we do put into it. And some, in, some constraints are completely unnecessary. So mm-hmm. for example, you might assume that somebody's just going to be like, okay, steel man, the fact that, uh, you know, one group of people is inferior to X. Um, but you know, again, like these are these are students. These are self-selected students at an Ivy League university, and they're they're brilliant, right? So, and naturally, these people they're gear so it towards people. Naturally, people gear it towards like the intellectual component of it, right? Mm. The components that really matter and the questions that really matter. Mm. So we select a topic, so and we we just pick a random person at the time to mm. say like, hey, can you represent this side of this narrative, mm. right? And the Hiroshima one just blew us all away. You begin by saying one, Hiroshima is. Uh, an atrocity because we bombed a, a city of civilians, hmm. right? And we didn't we didn't bomb like the leadership. Hmm. Um, but then you begin. Then Daniel pointed out like, okay, we did all these factors to basically say like these are the warning signs or this is the um, action by the Japanese to, to begin with that resulted in this, which resulted in this, which made this uh, negotiation attempt, which led to this result, mm-hmm. right? And that that was a required deterrent yeah. if that would not have occurred, right? So what's what's your? Like, yeah, I was gonna. So I. For me, um, stores where there has been a skin in the game have been the most interesting stores to me because they literally put us in a more risky situation than we'd like. So for instance, you talking about Israel-Palestine is your skin in the game and I can feel the discomfort of you saying something. But more importantly, there's two stores that stand out to me. And I think one of them you guys never attended. I think you guys never attended. The, the first one is the one that we do every semester at the beginning of it, where we put the skin in the, skin in the game from the administrations and the president's From this say, year or from last year? All of them. Like every time we sit down, every time we sit down and have the president defend and then attack his the club's position on free speech. I think it's profound because we are literally setting the stage up. Wait, so lay it out exactly how. Right. So what what will happen is we'll do a a a hot seat where what the president, whoever is the running president of colloquia, will sit in the middle, or whoever is running the the stall, sit in the middle, and then he will defend the first defend the fact that this should exist in a university campus, that this is a beneficial model for conversation anywhere, right? And everybody around them is allowed to attack 
right? Once that happened halfway through it, we flip where the same person who was defending his position earlier is now going to attack the idea of the existence of the club. So it's not just injecting skin in the game. It's basically putting yourself through the ringer. Yeah. And, well, and it's also showing that no idea, there's mm -hmm. no such thing as an unassailable truth, right. even our truth. Right. Yeah. The, the, the yeah. validity of my own self is being questioned here. The even fact the that fact I invest... There's no idea of an unassailable truth. It can be assailable. That idea I think that's itself. a that's a language game that Wittgenstein points to, but you are you are you're on the right uh, right end of the whole thing. But so th this 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 phenomena, uh, what that allows you to do is is sort of, it's not just my own credit. It's my investment. It's my emotion. It's my cognition. It's everything that I believe in being put to the test in front of the public for it to be decided whether the next few months are going to be comfortable for me or not. And talk about skin in the game, right? So we create we created this club. Mm -hmm. um, we believe in the idea. Mm -hmm. We get all this backlash from the Com Columbia community saying like you're just an alt right oh, echo chamber for, for secret Nazis in the in the GS community, right? right? Our president's Jewish, but we're helping with the secret Nazis. It's Illuminati more than Nazi. Yeah, right. Yeah. It's the oppressed who started it, but now we're the oppressors. But I think that's that's actually profound. And it's it's like a gamble for credit, right? If we come out on top of that conversation, we have so much more credit. And I think that's a secret ingredient into the compounding success of this model for us. Because mm -hmm. we every time we've gambled our own selves, we've come out winning everything else in the room as and well. And we learned from it. For sure. Even this last one, right? So I did the first two mm -hmm. as president. And then this last one, Alex is now president and he sat down on the hot seat. Even hearing his versions of why Stoa matters and why he wants to defend it versus the criticisms that he had, you you continuously learn. People yeah. in the room points out limitations in our in our intellectual form. And we operate differently because of that. We yeah. were able to actually change and modify. And we optimize. get the feedback we need. Exactly. I moderated the Suleimani case, all red team, all blue team, because of one of those idea of the conversations. Yeah. And even, so Brucker pointed out so many of these limitations, right? The right. fact that it, it's oppositional <clears throat> in nature when you have a split red team, blue team, some topics that work, some topic that doesn't. Mm -hmm. um, even the, the topic selection, right? So we, we, if, we, if it's a red team, blue team, we have to see the oppositional sides mm -hmm. we could very well get those wrong mm -hmm. right so what we do is we have a we have a board of 16 people that come together and we work out okay like this is where roughly this topic lies mm -hmm. and then it's about making sure that the topic is not too broad or right. not too narrow right mm -hmm. so it's refined collectively and hopefully what emerges out of that is the right way to structure the conversation the secret sauce of success has been feedback and brainstorming along those feedbacks for hours at length. I think the meetings that we have, closed room meetings, the, the, the ones that we have with just the board have been the key to success for this club. And I they're really an hour and a half long. And, and uh, you know what and the second... so fun. The second, the second most memorable store or the most, the most, my favorite store was the one we did about Chinese students being surveyed. I, yeah, I wasn't there. I yeah. was, you, neither were you, right, John? No, no, Thomas spoke. Of course I was there. Oh, you were there? But yeah. I remember there were Chinese students, not Thomas, who's, who's an integral part, who has an American accent, who's almost like, you know, white There, were, five years, there, so were, there were just thick accented Chinese graduate students who lived in China all their life, believing that America is the enemy, sitting there and defending America's right to place surveillance onto their own cells. That's skin in the game. Wait, so, so lay out the topic itself and lay out the problem. <clears throat> right, so what was happening was we were discussing, so what had happened uh, over the last summer was that there was uh, an, a statement that President Bollinger, the president of uh, uh, Colombia, had issued a statement saying that he would not comply with FBI's request to place surveillance onto Chinese students on the on the suspicion that they might be smuggling classified information back to China, right? Yeah. And so I think the second or the third store last semester, right after the summer, was along the lines of should China should uh, the, the, should 
colleges have the ability to sur- p- p- place surveillance on any of their students and specifically with respect to the Chinese students case. And yeah, we so, had- so we so we split it in the Trump administration asked. Right. Mm-hmm. So we steel man that component of it. Mm-hmm. And then Bollinger said no. Mm-hmm. So we steel man that component, that component of, it. of it. And we had an unreasonable amount of Chinese students turning up for that event. People who are usually not present at our stores. And these students were not just ethnically Chinese. Their families were Chinese and they're American. No, they were Chinese, Chinese students, as Indian as I am, mm-hmm. as Chinese, right? And they were sitting there and I was I, I was, I was like, do they, do they not feel displaced? Do they not feel like questioned of their own validity? Is their legitimacy not being challenged and are they feeling uncomfortable? I was just sitting there being an empath in a corner high as hell. And then I heard these Chinese students talk about why they should be surveillance. And they mm-hmm. made the most straight-faced, the most poker-faced arguments, very strong, stronger than any of us did. All these smart asses with thick asses and brilliant brains could do. These guys did with just their very, very rudimentary personal experience. And I was there sitting. I was like, what the fuck have we created? Because this does not like I, if you were to ask me to challenge my own validity, maybe I would be a little shy. Mm -hmm. But these absolute strangers were doing a damn fine job at that. Mm -hmm. And that gave me that gave me the final note of success I needed for this operation. That put blazed belief Uh, because we put the skin in the game and we came out better. Uh, Or sometimes uh, we had one or two cases where we put the skin in the game and it kind of blew up a little bit. We had the event with um, this woman who had come from Iran, uh, whose family was actually detained by the regime uh, because she decided to take off. Um, uh, her head job. covering, her hijab. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she was discussing this with a woman from Pakistan who had wrote prolifically on the subject uh, and believed the opposite. And they started speaking together. And I guess the layout was such that it was, um, I guess they were speaking more to one another as opposed to this. It was more of a lecture as opposed to a discussion. I wasn't there actually, so I don't really know, but from what I understand. And there was a lot of emotions were high. And I think that's because um, when you're students and you're talking with many people, you have a certain threshold of understanding and you realize that it's not trying to hurt anybody. Mm-hmm. But when you come from outside the school uh, to an event, you're, this is your opinion and you're known for your opinion, then attacking your opinion is like attacking yeah, yourself so, and that blew up a little bit. So I'll, I'll just expand on that really quick because uh, Jonathan Haidt mentioned this to me. Um, I asked him about his inability, at least on the spot, to be fair to him, um, to steel man the social justice narrative, right? So what he, was just, what he said was that the ability to suspend your position so much that you're able to articulate and embody another position is a superpower. It's not actually something that people inherently do, right? But the fact that we're students at least gives us the opportunity because we're very malleable at this position, right? Mm-hmm. We know that we don't know anything. Exactly. Okay, I don't bind to that. Finish your argument. That's right. No, but even that. then, like that, that's Haidt's own thing, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, what happened at this event is an example of where we we mess up, and there are plenty of stoas itself that we messed up. But this was an example at an event where we were not able to. Um, convey the attempt that we're making at dialogue to the people that were present. Right. right? So here's how I'll say that. I don't think that was the fault of the model. I think that was the fault on the execution end of things. Right. We hadn't done, say, let's just say our homework properly enough and we hadn't done our classwork. Like the present. No, actually, I, I actually disagree with that because mm-hmm. so we read one, um, the moderator mm-hmm. uh, read her New York Times article in response to this person that basically started this beautiful movement in Iran to... Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, she's like an example of the uh, the, the ultimate feminist, right? Mm-hmm. So in Iran, it's a compulsory hijab right, mm-hmm. laws. And if you take your hijab off in public or if you're seen without it, there are severe consequences, right? Mm-hmm. Severe public consequences. Um, so she created this movement where people would take their hijab off in public and she would post it on social media. Mm-hmm. And she has like hundreds of thousands of followers now. And she's attempting to address this 
at the cost of her own safety. Mm -hmm. She's in America because she's fled, right? Because there's, you know, th death threats from the Iranian regime. Mm -hmm. um, her pe family was in prison. Her brother is still currently in prison and they have no idea if he will ever get out, mm -hmm. right? right? So we read both of these people's responses to this. Um, the moderator and the two speakers went to dinner together, mm -hmm. right? And they were having cordial conversation. Right. Um, the moderator also read the books, right, that these people wrote. And she was very familiar with the content. Mm -hmm. However, when it translated to the event, and it becomes a public space, it's kind of what you were pointing out, Jonathan, is that you begin to say that I need to defend my position more. It becomes performative. It's performative post-conditional dissonance. Post-decisional. Post-decisional dissonance. Post-decisional dissonance. Essentially, if I put out an idea and I claim it as my own uh, in a public setting, I begin to believe that idea much more than I ever would so otherwise. Mm. Essentially, I have to say that this is true, even if I don't believe it's true, because I said it was true in the past. That's why you'll never see somebody online saying, oh, you've convinced me that my idea was wrong in a comment. No I, one will change their No one will change their point because they put it out public. on black and white. In the same way, when she put out her book and said, this is mine, you, it's so difficult to pull back from that. No, but I still, I, still, I still stand by the idea that it's not the fault of the model. It was human error that can happen in any I open agree system. With that. I agree with and that, yeah. It can happen in any open system. And we are, we, are, we are in a very, let's just say, dynamic open system when we are trying to do something as, as controversial, as charged as this one. And yeah. you know why I disagree with what Haidt has to say about, I think that was a cop-out too, saying that, oh, just because you're students, you have the superpower at a malleable age. I think it's just willingness. I think with age, what does happen, though, is that your willingness to introspect, especially along fun fundamental beliefs, reduces because how often are you going to check with yourself whether you are right or wrong at the very core of it, right? Yeah, yeah. But yeah. for a man like him who's invested in an intellectual profession, especially of the nature where he says one side is wrong and he's unwilling to say how he might be wrong is absolutely amoral to me. You know, um, so, I mean, this just points out to exactly what this is. This is an experiment. We have no idea what's the best way to produce quality it's bottom dialogue. Up. It's right? bottom up. And more than that, we want to get to a point where we can have people watching give us feedback so that we can incorporate the best version going forward. Absolutely. We want to optimize exactly. This. Right. So and again, we, we just came up with this one STOA model and then we've created many formats in that. And then we've adjusted many components within those formats. Mm -hmm. So if, if somebody like, for example, if somebody has a better idea, we would love to hear it. Right. Because right? somebody we'll, totally disagrees with what we're saying. Let us know. We would love to hear it. Right. Come on the show. Because yeah. listen, you guys are spot on, right? This is an emergent phenomena. We are building it up bottom up. We have no fucking idea what three, we might know what the next two steps look like. Like we have no idea what the so next three a good steps question. look like. What would you, if you had to give this sort of blessing to our operation going forward, what would you want it to look for? What would you want it to look like in, in a year? What were the, what are the things you, you wish for it in the future? Are you asking that as a feedback to the people who are listening? No, no, I'm asking you personally. Mm -hmm. What do you see this being? Ultimate adaptability, right? Ultimate I, adaptability. I, I genuinely think what we should be doing, and this is something I've ran with my own enterprise, and it's 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 it, it has given me fair returns, is that you get absolutely mind-boggling stab like just painful feedback from people and adapt and i think that's that's what we need to be doing because like i said like you guys said this is this is emergent this is bottom up we don't know where this is going we yeah. only can predict so much what we are trying to do is hold on to the reins of responsibility in conversations so tightly that we don't let go of them we're being very precise with the words we put in we're being very very open to the jokes that we can crack on ourselves and the whole idea is to communicate an honest yum humble sense of exploration of ideas that's all we're trying to do and if there's a better way to do that because that's what we're trying to put out is a better way to have conversation if you listeners find watchers find a better way in which we can do that we're absolutely open to that our emails will be in the show notes or whatever the fuck yeah dm us tell us what we can do yeah. better. what about you perry what do you see the future looking looking like I hope this turns out to be a place where people come to play with ideas, 
I really like that, and I, I use the word play um, intentionally. I think that if we if we create an environment where people just can remove themselves from their own position and then actually really critically think about the ideas in the world that really matter, right? The, and no matter how controversial they are, no matter what background that you have, everyone can contribute different things. But if the goal is to solve a problem, in our mind, this is how you solve the problem, mm-hmm. right? This is how you go about it. This is at least how you think about it. And I hope what people gain from watching these things is watch people think out loud. Watch the people you respect actually think out loud. Mm. And that means that you see them misspeak. Mm-hmm. That means that you'll see them be wrong. Make mistakes. Exactly. I mean, besides the fact that we doing this get to be able to actually interact with some of the people that we find very interesting and look up to, uh, I think that the portion that I really most appreciate is the symptom that comes after we do this. I think the fact that it can be seen as an activist movement forcing people to interact more with each other and get more confidence to say the things that they're not quite sure about and saying, hey, it's okay that I don't know I want to play with this. That's something I think is beautiful. If we can make our surrounding an area where people are just confident to go up uh, and say, hey, uh, what do you guys think about this? What do you feel about this? Let's have a meaningful conversation and not talk about the weather for 45 minutes. I think I, I think I want to uh, pull on that a little. Please, please I'm do. not sure if I am looking for people being confident enough. I'm looking for people being desensitized enough. Confident enough, I would say, and maybe you're misunderstanding me. No, 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 I'm not. I'm, I'm just trying to be precise. Like, I know no, what no. you're saying. I understand your intent. You know why I'm saying desensitized is because as soon as you're confident, there is motivation attached to it. And I want this type of a conversation to be an absolutely unmotivated, except one motivation, which could be coming at whatever version of your truth is. Yeah. But as soon as you have confidence, no, no, there no, is... No, it's not motivation. It's a performance of confidence. It's basically just being able to interact right. with others, whether that comes from a place well, of motivation or desensitization. The, 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 middle, the middle term seems to be humility. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. So if you, could just, if you could just approach these conversations with like, a little humility, mm-hmm. right? Or you can teach me something, right? right? Please teach me something. Right. Right. And I think the interesting thing is that, I mean, obviously we talk about these political conversations quite often often because mm-hmm. that's what you'll hear in the muse and media and that's mm-hmm. what students really care about but some of the most fascinating conversations have been the philosophical mm-hmm. right so two come to mind the first one we did was a conversation on death mm-hmm. which i think it's a disservice to every human being if you do not contemplate what the magnitude of the human condition which is that we are all going to die the only not constant me, in life. the only certainty in life is death the only truth the, no mm-hmm. not me i'm gonna get to a point where i just surpass living you just join yourself with the AI. you for the rest. Yeah. You just join Jonathan your would be the most fun ghost to have. Dude, that would be such a cool yeah. ghost, man. But so even this conversation on tests. Even this conversation on death, this was the first time that many of those students ever had a conversation like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? So again, um, we live in a world where you're not constantly losing family members that you love, right? Mm-hmm. You're not losing siblings in the process of, you know, raising them or even in birth. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't lose parents as often. And especially in the United States, you can go your entire lifetime without actually seeing death actually experiencing death so many of these people have never been to a funeral right Um, but when we began this conversation on what death is why it matters when it occurs and why it's important to consider it all of a sudden people people actually operated from that place of humility Mm because like when you when it's political you have a background and you have a position even if you don't claim it um, and then you operate from that space but when you realize like I know nothing right I know nothing but this is what I feel, right. right? This is what I fear. 
This is why it bothers me. Mm-hmm. That's the humility that you p- approach these conversations from. I think Heidegger would be so proud of the fact. I'm sorry, but Heidegger would be so proud of the fact that we had it's a conversation okay. about death. Like his yeah. entire philosophical thesis was that we are in a disconnect when it comes to life. That being yeah. is no longer being with a capital B. And the reason for that is we are no longer pondering on questions about morality and death and but living. In, in that same sense, even the superfluous conversation that we have about, like, let's say, why are farts funny? If you synthesize that to the basic core and you dig and dig and dig, it gets to a very interesting place as well. Well, let me just explain that, right? So why is funny funny? Right. Funny exists, you laugh because there's a disconnect in the mind, right? You expect one thing and something else happens or you think one thing and there's then all of a sudden relief. there's another yeah. thing. And the, the bridge in the middle is laughter. Exactly. Right. And nobody talks about funny like that. Exactly. We watch comics, we watch fucking whatever, we yeah. laugh about it. I think modern day philosophers are absolutely comedians because what does laughter do? It means that you, you just, you, you need to... There's something that you don't understand. There's a gap, right? Mm-hmm. And it's especially effective and obvious when it comes to meeting new groups of people. Mm-hmm. That's why we make jokes. Mm-hmm. That's why we laugh. You do realize, though, that comedians are postmodernists in their interpretations of events, right? Not all of them. Most of, most of com- com- uh, comedic commentary is sort of a reinterpretation of the way things can be. And the ones that survive, the ones that are at the top of their games survive because their postmodern interpretation is actually correct or valid. You know, what? I mean, that's a tangent we should not touch upon, but yeah, uh, that's yeah, just, like just like a side fact. But, you know, I think the right way to describe a nomenclature for what we're trying to do is create a, is create a flotation tank of ideas, mm-hmm. right? Where we can absolutely be unaffected, depersonalized, almost like we are Martians from Mars talking about ideas that affect Earth and then come to a reasonable point of conclusion. Right, uh, because I think it's also it's. Um, I know you've believed, but yeah, I just want to say thank you for the opportunity and see you next week. Yeah, for sure. Right, we love we're you, man. We're closing on our topic too. Yeah, so but I think I think uh, one of the more uh, important things that we we allowed to do in the in the progressive chronology of how ideas must be discussed is that people often, as a function of their biology and psychology, start with the personal, then go to the apersonal, and then sort of synthesize them towards a conclusion. Mm-hmm. But I think the right way to do that is apersonal, and then personal, and then get to the right place of conclusions. Mm-hmm. You see what I mean? So like, it has to begin from a place where you are a Martian first, and then an Earthling. And only then can you come to a place which is a valid, a hard-worked, a homeworked opinion. Yeah. Right. And that's what we're allowing. Like I have, nobody has an opinion in the face of death. Mm -hmm. No opinion in the face of death is going to matter. So no matter who you are, whether you're Chinese or Korean or fucking Indian or whatever, or like woman, LGBT, like whatever you are, it does not matter. That's the same for everybody. It's the ultimate equalizer. It's the ultimate equalizer. So now when you have the concept of death and the ultimate equalizer happening, Mm -hmm. now you have to depersonalize yourself first. And you can even add that to a criticism of the university. I think it's a disservice, right? That there's not one class that just tells you just the simple facts of being a human being, Mm -hmm. right? If you call a class death and consciousness, the two biggest questions that we have, right? Mm-hmm. What does it mean to die? And obviously, the reason you could, like, for example, uh, Marcus Aurelius or any philosopher that talks about death says that the reason life is so meaningful is because it ends. You know, you know what? There is, if there is twenty disciplines that a university teaches, only one discipline can approximate questions of the nature of consciousness and death, and that's philosophy. And that's primarily because we have no fucking scientific or social scientific idea to approximate that subject, right? Mm-hmm. So. Uh, there is, I, I totally understand the skew, but it's a function of the sub- substance of the conversation. Yeah. There is no way in hell, because here is what, of course, like if I have to make a YouTube video to explain people why they should remember death, especially after the Mahabharat has mentioned it and Seneca has mentioned it and fucking so many like fucking Heidegger has mentioned it. It is because that's not a ubiquitous fucking phenomena. 
it is not a ubiquitous fucking memory that we operate from and i don't think i cannot find a sustainable way in which the university can do that at scale you know what i mean i think columbia's attempt at a global core right is a good attempt Absolutely. right so you have like one foundational set of knowledge that everybody experiences and all of its philosophy um and then you expand it to the fields that you want to gravitate towards stem for example hmm. right but if you include within that core curriculum and other universities adapt something like this too where you you just begin right by what makes you human subject of life right like let's call it the discipline of life yeah even um uh, professor kaufman's class on the science of living well mm-hmm. right add that to the core and see what happens see i'm not i'm not particularly impressed oh, you are actually taking the class I have it. It's 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 I mean maybe I'm, it's just like what the curse of knowledge is to Bertrand Russell, right? I knew all of that or most of it so it did not yeah. seem I mean, that's what we experienced in that evolutionary psychology and class too. For sure and you know my problem my fucking problem with a class like that or a class is that if you cannot make a case for why what you're saying is wrong which is inherently tied to the philosophy of our model of conversation if you cannot if if you do not have an exclusion in definition you cannot have an inclusion in definition because then you're no longer defining you're describing the yeah. entire set of the systems. definition process is at, at putting a barrier right it, so if you if if all your attempt is to say these are the good methods these are the, what are the bad what are the dark sides of these methods yeah. how do you overdo or underdo these things so that they have yeah. a residue that you cannot be- so even then like so the problems with the university began because capitalism took it in a particular direction mm-hmm. right so even the inception it was to create uh, competent factory workers we can copy paste people into any given environment and they could at least have the basic skills necessary to do a job mm-hmm. now we've obviously graduated from that technology has allowed us to expand the breadth of what we're able to do but we're still operating from that same model mm-hmm. right not not truly though not truly like i don't see anything at columbia that is targeted as at us learning how to make less mistakes as it is to as it is to optimize creativity like i truly think universities have evolved in that sense i think it's a straw man case i'm not convinced like for example if you ask people why they're at school is to get a job the vast mm-hmm. majority of like that's what they'll say mm-hmm. um if you ask like the type of jobs like mm-hmm. at columbia it's banking and accounting oh my gosh right yeah. so like if why you're going mm-hmm. if you're going to a university and putting all this money to learn this set of skills right mm-hmm. you at least should learn you know the the, the larger considerations I, but i think that's that's on the students like you know what i think the truer the truer threat or like the uh, the, the, the proper opposition to what you're saying is the fact that you are going to be irrelevant if you're on Wall Street 20 years down the line and if you have not adapted right mm-hmm. there is going to be an irrelevance and obsolescence so, so this this event that we did the state of the university address was this we were revisiting the foundational purpose of what a university was meant to be sure. right and it's not to give you jobs no. it's not to give no, you no, jobs no. And, but, but that's exactly why people say you should go to university and mm-hmm. that's why people that are at university say they're there mm-hmm. right it's that so they can they could be employed at some point even though that's a byproduct this universal credit i get with columbia's name on my shirt right the fact that now i can walk into rooms i would not have been usually allowed to walk into because i have the name columbia on my back when that peripheral byproduct becomes the central main derivation that i have from my enterprise it is it's, it's it's sad it's hollow it's hollow it's completely hollow it won't lead you where it has to yeah. right so the university itself right it's an incubated environment where we've put this prestigious position on these students that are just closed off from the problems of the world mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. they have everything basically provided for them they have every need that could be met done mm-hmm. apart from the funding end right that's its own problem but mm-hmm. even then like people will take loans and now they're in this suspension of belief mm-hmm. right where it's just like a, a fairy tale almost and where you're there because society recognizes that we need to educate to the to the furthest extent the the youth of mm-hmm. the nation right so the youth are the future mm-hmm. and because of that we created this coveted space mm-hmm. where we can hone them right allow them to cultivate all the values that matter mm-hmm. and then propagate them in a larger society and mm-hmm. then pass it on to their children right right mm-hmm. but now in that attempt mm-hmm. if you are 
coddling these students, mm -hmm. if you're preventing them from actually exploring these conversations that matter, if you're not making them uncomfortable, mm -hmm. if you're not teaching them to work with the adversity that they're experiencing, right. if you don't challenge their ideas, mm -hmm. you're doing nothing but crippling them. If you are trading off your responsibility of teaching students how to think for what to think, which is a pervasive phenomenon as far as the Indian education system is concerned for me and to a great degree, a lot of courses that are so, so economics courses. Mm -hmm. It's like really, really, when you're teaching microeconomics, bleed in a few of the commonest criticisms that they have for microeconomics. Mm -hmm. Please, let me see where it's failing. Yeah. Please, right? And that's a humble attempt of colloquia, right? right? So a humble attempt is we're going to show you how to think. It's reinvigorating what a learning environment should be. Yeah. That's what we're trying yeah. to do. And so even like, so another fascinating one of these philosophical conversations was a conversation on love right? Mm -hmm. When you walk in, you have these preconceived notions of what love is. And typically that comes from the media that you digest. If, you, if you're born in America, you have a very Disney version of what love looked like. Mm -hmm. And then when you participate in love, you realize that it's so complex, mm -hmm. right? It's so much more pragmatic. And, it, and it's different for men and women, right? Mm -hmm. They want different things out of a relationship. Sure. Right. There's a beautiful book called, I think it's called, um, what my father didn't know and what my mother couldn't tell him, mm -hmm. right? And it all, it's all these unsaid wants and desires of how you want the other person to operate in a relationship, right? Right. right? If you have no background in that, you're, 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 you're left helpless when you come into problems. When, and, in your I, and, I think, and I think the right way to solve it is not to directly address these questions. And this is sort of, this is sort of like a paradox that you know, gets thrown around. The university or the school should teach us how to do taxes instead of teaching us what fucking geometry is. No. Mm. No, I think it should teach you geometry mm -hmm. because those are things you must equip you. They're, they're, they're minimalistic skills. You can learn them on the job. Yeah. What the university or the school or a learning environment must be teaching you is the processes of thinking. Mm -hmm. How you draw the tangents on the graph of thought mm -hmm. is what the university must be teaching you. And I cannot, like, I hated learning chemistry and biology and, and physics as a kid. And I hated mathematics and now... All I think is in is is in statistics and and, and geometry and, yeah. and and fucking physics and even, all that. Even chemistry, right? right? So I think another problem with even like so the there's an obvious necessity for people to learn these subjects, mm -hmm. but we don't tell them why, mm -hmm. right? We mm -hmm. give them actually like the most obscure definitions as to why, mm -hmm. because if you want to be a scientist, then chemistry is useful, mm -hmm. right? Biology is useful, mm -hmm. but even in my own life. So I, I did terribly in these classes in high school, didn't mm -hmm. pay attention, just completely dismissed it. I'll never use this again. And then all of a sudden I started experiencing health problems. Mm -hmm. And then I realized that the Western medical community was basically impotent when it came to solving these problems. Mm -hmm. If you have any, like, for example, if you have mental health issues, mm -hmm. right, you're going to just going to be medicated or you can educate yourself on what's happening. And then you could take the variety of other approaches. Mm -hmm. Now I'm teaching myself biology. I'm teaching myself neurochemistry. I'll give you a more tangible example. Now I... Random sampling in statistics is basically choosing a subset from a larger set that represents the population, right? Now I get that when Avnish's father talks about it in the biomedical sense, right? Where he's testing medication, so he's going to take a random sample, blah, 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 blah. Now, I, st I launch a product. I launch my YouTube product. I need to know whether it's going to stand or not, right? What am I going to do? I'm, I can wait for YouTube to give me feedback on how many views I get, or I could go onto WhatsApp, send it to eight people who I can stratify according to my own self. This is a person who's placed in this direction. This is a person who's placed in this direction. This is a hierarchy of things. And this is the, these are the hypotheses I, ex, I expect from, and suddenly I'm thinking more statistically. I've applied a concept that was so abstract and so mathematical and so in its own domain, in its own legion, in its own world and imported it to my everyday life. Mm -hmm. I think the right way, and this is, you are right when you say, I discarded all those notions as this will never help me why do i want to learn classical mechanics mm -hmm. i didn't even know the word classical why do i want to spend time with that it is 
the, the best way to fall in love with reading and no matter what you're reading again is trying to extract the skeleton of the thought the philosophy mm-hmm. of the thought the how to think mm-hmm. of that thought rather than what to think yeah. and if everybody was buying into newton we would never have come to quantum yeah. physics yeah. and if everybody was buying into relativity we would never have come to general or special relativity mm-hmm. and so th- that that actually adds to what we're attempting to do with stoa mm-hmm. right so i think a disservice that these academics end up producing is that they hyper hyper intellectualize all of these conversations and it's not a bad thing right because obviously if you want to consider the furthest ends and you want to grapple with your own ideas you just do it at your level mm-hmm. right and you do it at somebody else with your level mm-hmm. and then what what's produced right is a more sophisticated right. complex version mm-hmm. but when it comes to assimilating these ideas into the public right most academics talk as if they're only talking to other academics mm-hmm. right but these conversations and these ideas are for everyone the reason why we set out on that exploration why we created a field of economics is so that we could solve the world's problems or why we set out like the 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 the, the idea is that you set off on a tangent of abstraction so then you can make it practical and pragmatic towards mm-hmm. the end and tyler carvin covers it very fun, uh, very brilliantly he's like all these academics are focused on creating hyper specific new economic geography of new york city from 1860 to 1920 mm-hmm. the fuck is that going to do if you cannot import that into real life mm-hmm. so if economics is the language of human behavior across complex systems yeah we might we must be able to extract something of what we've learned so that we can solve the problems that's why john maynard keynes and karl marx happened to stand out because they had importable wisdoms they did not have just abstract you know fucking out there far out ideas yeah. they could bring it back to real life yeah and the loop needs to be complete somebody needs to be looking out that's why generalists are so important in our time and we are creating generalists there is a book by david epstein called um, range mm-hmm. and range talks about why generalists do better in our times than specialists do mm-hmm. and then there was a the, and adding to that there was a conversation i was listening to between gary kasprov and, and eric weinstein and they were talking about how what ai is good at is what humans can never be good at mm-hmm. which is reducing the number of mistakes mm-hmm. right what humans are good at ais can never be good at which is creating patterns of thought mm-hmm. creativity mm-hmm. right and i think now more obvious than ever but even without the technological element at the backdrop of everything it is so important for for people to learn how to think creatively beyond everything and anything they can produce. And what's fascinating is that they have the faculty. It's innate mm-hmm. to them. Right. right. Especially to all these kids, especially to any any child, any adult at a university, especially to anybody in a learning environment, be that a school, be that a fucking I don't know, a club, whatever it is. As long as they're there, they have opened the right door because they have the right intuition mm-hmm. and that intuition is that you have mm-hmm. the ability to think you have the all the faculties you need at your disposal right. right but we we dampen them and we put barriers to them because we we prevent ourselves from actually believing that we can participate in these conversations too right because they're the ones they're they're exactly the ones that matter mm-hmm. economics is a great example because it seems so far out of the realm of what people can understand right no one on their own volition in at least like average america mm-hmm. wants to dig into what the roots of capitalism were mm-hmm. what are the limitations they don't read uh, uh and that is political Locke philosophy right? yeah that's political and, and that's just political mm-hmm. right political economics and yes. so even in economics right so to understand economics you have to begin in psychology mm-hmm. right you have to begin in like the fundamentals of who we the are unit, yes and then you begin into the political theory and then you merge the two and this new field emerges right. right right but this governs every aspect of your life you are in an economic system you know the funny thing thing about economics is that i waited for the first four semesters here at columbia I, when i was hoping i was like somebody is going to tell me something i don't know mm-hmm. right economics is so intuitive 
and I operated from that place that my intuition is obviously limited. There has to be more. The cause and effects are so simplified if somebody mm-hmm. sits with a book. They, it's so obvious if the government reduces interest rates, investment is going to come in because people can now borrow cheaper and now invest more and then they can make more profits from the return to investment that they do and the interest rates that yeah. they're paying. So intuitive, so obvious, right? But because people don't spend time enough, because they don't delve in, and it's just a matter of opening the door. You know what? And so what, what the knowledge of economics affords you is the ability to improve upon it, right? Mm-hmm. So say you're ignorant of economics, you're just vaguely produ- uh, participating in the system, then it's profit, mm-hmm. right? Then it just boils down to profit for every company out there. But if you have this understanding mm-hmm. and then you apply these other fields, right? So if you apply philosophy to economics, all of a sudden you get philosophers that are participating in companies like Google and Facebook mm-hmm. saying like, okay, are we actually contributing to the well-being of human life, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. we can maximize for profit mm-hmm. and we'll make money, right? But is that better for people in the long term? Mm-hmm. Now you start thinking ahead. Now you start thinking about what we're actually doing mm-hmm. rather than how much money that we're making. I think Peter Thiel was majored in philosophy. Yeah, he did. Right? He did. He and did. that makes the case enough, right? And I mean, I, that, that, that's how I place philosophy. Philosophy is, is the language of how to think. Yeah. Right? And it's also a conversation across all human history about the ends of life, mm-hmm. right? The furthest that we can conceive, we begin there, mm-hmm. right? So we're, we're awake. Why are we awake? And why how must we, we get awake? Right? Right. Absolutely. And I think um, and I think just to tie it back into the whole idea of what, why we are doing what we're doing, it's here's what Colloquia allowed me to do. It allowed me to see myself as a philosopher for the first time ever. I've always dreamed of being one. It's mm. an obscure dream. Almost nobody who starts off wanting to be a philosopher ends up being a philosopher in our times. They become philosophy professors or they become people with opinions. Mm-hmm. Colloquia allowed me to see that the people that I respect are not very, very, very different from who I am. Mm-hmm. People who I like to buy into, their ideas I prescribe to, are not very different from myself. Yep. And if I try hard enough, I am there. And what that means is people whose ideas shape the world are me. Mm-hmm. And I have the ultimate responsibility mm-hmm. to have my ideas in place and in order after much fucking hard-fought victories mm-hmm. in the idea sphere of things. And so that's what Jordan Peterson articulates beautifully, right? So the beginning with individual responsibility is the knowledge that I have to participate in society. Mm-hmm. I might be in a small bubble, but I can make that bubble as beautiful as possible. Mm-hmm. And if everybody across a domain begins to do that, right? Imagine it's a grassroots effort to better human life. Mm-hmm. And we deify philosophers or we say, or we, or we trivialize philosophers mm-hmm. saying that- and Discard them, and, motherfuckers knew nothing. So to reintroduce the notion, um, one, I think everyone should consider themselves a philosopher mm-hmm. if they like to think, mm-hmm. right? If they, if they want to understand something or if they explore any thoughts. See, I'm against that. What? You have to put in the homework. You have to put in the homework. You have to earn the right to call yourself yes. a philosopher. You, and to yourself. Socrates and Plato would agree with you. Yeah, I know. You have to fucking ask yourself. And somebody asked me, what is this homework you keep talking about? And it's simple. If you can ask yourself a question that you cannot answer, you've done your homework. Mm-hmm. And then if you can answer it and then ask a question that you cannot answer, you've done your homework. Mm-hmm. People, if you know what you're standing for, you're inherently wrong. Mm-hmm. If you don't have a better question to ask yourself than your original position, Mm-hmm. you're inherently wrong. So that's part of what we're attempting to do with this podcast, right? right. And this company now, mm-hmm. right? So we want to at least create this idea and, and demystify the notion of philosophy, but right. we also demystify all these concepts that people don't want to touch. Demystify conversation as a whole. Yeah. Right? Like this is this is, this is is what I call homework in action. If I can ask you a better question than the one you've thought, our homework's complete. Mm-hmm. Say you defend gun rights in front of me and I can ask you a better question. Our homework's complete. Mm-hmm. We've let people know that one, there is a very definite answer and two, there is a very 
very definite question yeah. and both of them are uncontested. But even like you can even expand that further, like break down what homework is. It means mm-hmm. you go off on your own and you do this work, right? Right. You mm-hmm. do this work and then you come back, mm-hmm. right, to the classroom that matters. Right. And then you participate from a more informed place. Right. It's the same thing with psychedelics. If you just take a psychedelic for the hell of it, mm-hmm. you're going to be on off of a ride that you are not prepared yeah, for. Yeah, do your homework, fucking meditate before you do that, right? Mm-hmm. Clear your system, so set your intentions. If, and it's, it's the singular biggest learning that I have had personally from Colloquia. Is mm-hmm. Do your fucking homework before you have an opinion. As soon as somebody tries to lecture me on racism, I tell them, I've sat through enough conversations on racism with 20 of the smartest people I've fucking met in my life. And I think what you're saying is plausible, but it's indefinite. You should consider this too. Mm-hmm. Right? And that's what it is. Now my homework's done. Now mm-hmm. I understand the cost of having an opinion. Yeah. Right? And I say this all the time. I, I think in a, in, a, in, a, in a podcast conversation, I've already mentioned that. I think we managed successfully to embed the right to an opinion mm-hmm. in our legal framework we embedded that but we never found a way to embed the responsibility to an opinion mm-hmm. in our legal framework and therefore we must do it in our socio-cultural framework mm-hmm. and this is the fucking attempt we have at that yep. is to embed the responsibility the homework you need to have a voiceable opinion yep and even in the united states so we're a melting pot right we're this strange experiment that has never existed mm-hmm. rome tried and failed mm-hmm. right but they tried in their own way so now we're trying and we're saying, okay, we can get all these different people from all these different cultures, religions, backgrounds, and we put them in the same place and we call them American, mm-hmm. right? So you, as long as you hold these very simple ideals of life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, and then the complex economics that it falls on top of that, mm-hmm. um, you now can contribute to this attempt to create at least a global environment, mm-hmm. right? And the, the homework component of it is this, if you have an opinion, right in the united states typically it falls along the lines of where you're from or what community you belong to mm-hmm. but the thing is we can't just isolate ourselves to our it's one community responsible. right we're all here together right. so even this like criticism that you gave about racism it's not that you're wrong let me tell you why mm-hmm. right it's like okay consider I, the evidence i know where you're coming from mm-hmm. right and i've i've considered that too mm-hmm. there are merits but there are there are things that there there are gaps mm-hmm. right Think about that. Right. Think about this portion of it. Right. I was telling Jonathan earlier that w- one of my one thing that I realized from Reading is that most people have no idea what an Indian is or what a Muslim is. They're just mm-hmm. not exposed to it because everyone's white. Right. Um, so if somebody comes up to me and says that I uh, like you're Indian, you must love curry or you smell like curry. Mm-hmm. Right. Some people consider that racist. Mm-hmm. If somebody's like, oh, do you wear the towel on your head? Mm-hmm. Right. Somebody might consider that racist. Now. If I call them racist, then I am immediately barring any progress from occurring. The conversation, the conversation. doesn't exist. Yes. Or I can say, okay, there's a level of ignorance in this person. Let mm-hmm. me educate them. Mm-hmm. Now it's an opportunity to grow for mm-hmm. both of you. Mm-hmm. And also, okay, we'll we close this off here. There's two last things that I have to say. One, I think you're right about the American experiment in that sense. The the very and it's it's sort of the the the, the shadow of the American experiment is the same shadow that we share at this venture particularly and the shadow is the bottom-up emergent phenomena america is an emergent phenomena most people who tried to contest with america on the global scale and did not do as well be that russia i don't know about china but they did not because they had a top-down approach not Mm -hmm. a bottom-up approach Mm -hmm. a bottom-up approach usually has proven to be more successful i think as far as it's built on a foundation right so you you have this the, the control room is sort of set and then you let the pieces play and interact with them as they move forward keeping those value systems intact right um I actually forgot what the second thing was. Um, but yeah, so I think I think that, that, that we, we share that shadow here at Colloquia where there is almost no top-down prescriptive nature to it at all. Yeah. The store has no prescription. Yep. We do not tell you what to do yep. or what to think. Yeah. So for, for the people listening, 
Um, again, this is an experiment. We have no idea how to do it correctly, mm -hmm. right? But we're trying. And in our attempt, we came up with a model. Mm -hmm. And that model seems to work, at least for the two years that we've been experimenting on our university population mm -hmm. and the other universities that have attempted this too. Mm -hmm. So hopefully, our attempt is going to be to expand this and, and spread it out to larger society. Mm -hmm. If anybody... So basically, we'll have... Um, We'll have topic selections and then we'll have a STOA itself. So you guys will get to look at what a STOA actually looks like. If you enjoy it, reach out to us. We'll show you how to do it. We'll explain the rules. We'll mm -hmm. explain how to conduct this we have a manifesto. Yeah, we have a, we we have have a manifesto. <laughs> we get you to, to commit some murder. <laughs> Um, and then if you have one, if you have topic suggestions, if you want to participate and you're in the New York area, reach out to us, let mm -hmm. us know. Mm -hmm. um, if you think that there's any limitations, criticisms, ir like irresponsible components of it, also let us know because we learn from that. Mm -hmm. um, you can find us obviously on this podcast. We'll be on ThinkSpot too. Mm -hmm. um, if, uh, you know, follow us on all those social media platforms. Eventually or when our website uh, is launched, then you know, there'll be a place where you guys can interact with us directly. Mm -hmm. um, all of our information will be in the show notes. Mm -hmm. And um, again, like this is our attempt at thinking out loud. Thank you for letting us do what we want to do. That's what I'd say. Thank you for letting me live the life I like. Peace. Peace.